Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by the new Squarespace. Squarespace introduces a new content management system, making it faster and easier to create a high-quality website or blog, plus mobile responsive designs with automatic device scaling and more than 50 other new features. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, just go to squarespace.com slash twip and use the offer code TWIP7. This week on TWIP, Canon enters the mirrorless market, a photographer's Instagram photos get published in Sports Illustrated, and some folks are buying followers and likes on Instagram, plus an interview with Gavin Syme on The Zone System. It's Wednesday, July 25th, 2012, and this is TWIP. And welcome back to TWIP. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Joining me today on the show um, are some familiar... Actually, everyone on the show hasn't been on in forever. So let me just run down the names. It's Joseph Lenaschke, Thomas Hawk, and our founding father... Alex Lindsay is here. <laughs> so, hey, well, hey guys. The founding mother. <laughs> uh, I think it was Immaculate Conception, right, Alex? <laughs> yes, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> All right, guys, welcome. I Let's... thought it was Lisa Betney. Oh, <laughs> it's going to be that kind of show, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not going to touch that one. Yes. Yeah. Let, let me control. It's going to be a hat hurt, uh, cat hurting show. So let's, let's you roll want to start the show over. Is it like that? <laughs> no, no. We, we, this is a one take show, man. We don't start anything over. All right. Uh, Thomas, since you have so clearly threw down the gauntlet, what's been up in your world? Uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit in, when we get deeper into the show, like your letter to Flickr and all that stuff. But what have you been up to, man? Man, just kind of the same old stuff, uh, running around the country taking pictures. Uh, I just got back from Denver, and I was in Chicago, and I was in uh, Salt Lake City, uh, down and shot the Colors Festival earlier this year, and just been running around shooting stuff and hanging out online. I've been on Google Plus a lot. Uh, we've got a show there every Wednesday night, Photo Talk Plus, that I do with Lotus Carroll at uh, 8 o'clock Pacific time, and uh, kind of all the same stuff, publishing to Google Plus and Facebook and Flickr and Twitter you know, you and every place else that'll have me. You know what I tell people about you? You know, I was reading that Flickr letter, and of course we talked about it after you posted that, and after Melissa Meyer came on as the CEO of Yahoo. Uh, but I look at you as kind of, you know, uh, kind of our Ralph Nader of photography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are our bit. advocate. I, mean, I, I, I love Flickr. <laughs> I think you know I've been on it since two thousand four, and I'm on it every single day, and. I really do hope the best for it, and I think that there's, you know, it's got a ton of potential, and, um, uh, you know, I think it's just kind of been neglected for a while, and, uh, you know, I'm hoping for big things. I hope that uh, that uh, Marissa Meyer and uh, her team will be able to turn some of that around. Yeah, yeah, let's hope. Let's hope. Well, welcome to the show. It's uh, it's good to have you. It's good to hear your voice again. Yeah, good to, good to see you guys again. Hear uh, you guys again. <laughs> hear us. Yeah. Hear us. We'll see you on your show. You can hear us on our show. Uh, Joseph Lenaski is also here. A notable thing about Joseph is Joseph is no longer single. Not that oh he was single goodness. before, but now he has jumped the broom and is a married man. Congratulations, Joseph. <laughs> Why, thank you very much, sir. So how do, how do you feel? Does it feel different being married? 
Yeah, you know, a little uh, little heavier on the third finger there, but uh, <laughs> oh, it's, it's fantastic. It's really, really wonderful. That's good. That's good. Well, congratulations and, and welcome to the show. I know you have a lot of stuff to talk about with Aperture being updated and, of course, today's release of Mountain Lion. So we That's will, right. we'll dive into that a little bit later, too. And then finally, last but not least, the founding father. Mr. Alex Lindsay, we managed to pin him down. We crossed the streams, and Alex appeared. Alex, welcome. I'm I'm a location challenge. That's my problem. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm uh, never in one place long enough to, to podcast much anymore. So Alex, not, it's you know, not your I'm, fault. I've been really happy that you've been able to keep it moving because I think if you hadn't been here uh, doing all of this stuff, um, we, we, the show wouldn't exist. Because I'm. Yeah, it's been a little crazy for me. It's been a little crazy, but I, you know, I tell people it's not your fault, Alex. It's the, it's it's all the fault of the fact that the planet rotates and the sun thing and the whole planet rotating around the sun. It, it's all been it's, <laughs> it, it, it actually is all connected to a uh, to sunspots. It's sunspots. Oh, not yeah, solar flares. But I guess it's, it's, when it's a sunspot issue, I just you know I just don't have any reception. I just it's just hard to get on Skype. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So, so just update us real quick. What what's been going on in the world of Alex Lindsay? Well, we've been doing a lot of you know, uh, Pixelcore has been doing a lot of live streaming. So we we just manage a lot of live events, and um, we've been doing that all over the world. So I was in Australia last week, um, London the week before. Uh, I'm going to be in DC at the end of this week, and um, you know, it's just been one thing after another where we just you know, it turns out that what we do is more unique than we thought it was, and yeah. so we're just um, really busy. So we really are just managing lots of. Basically, interactive live events. So if you're doing something live and you want to bring people in from all over the world and in a variety of different technologies and then have that stream back out to the world, and it's, it's a little bit more complex than a standard video stream. And, and so that's what, we, that's what we've been doing. And, uh, and, of course, we learned a lot of it doing podcasts and doing all these other pieces. And so it's, um, it's just kind of uh, a continuing evolution, but it got real busy. <laughs> so, I don't know. So just, we've, been, we've just, been just trying to, I, you know, most of our team wakes up not knowing what continent they're on. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a geek's dream, though. I mean, you get to play with unlimited toys with <laughs> really cool people in strange places, right? <laughs> so, it, it is, it is. Where's it's, the it's, downside it, it other than not sleeping? <laughs> When you get over the fact, like it's really easy to have like first world problems and complain about your plane seat or the food or whatever, and then you just forget. Oh right, I'm hanging out with incredibly cool people, and we're I'm all over the world, and I get to meet people all over the world, and so so it's it really is a a, a real um you know incredible opportunity. Wow, wow, well good, congratulations. Sounds like the Pixel Core is running on all cylinders. So. Keep it more going. than all cylinders. I think we, we need a couple more. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the Pixel Core is redlining. So <laughs> Yes, exactly. That's pretty much it. We're about 5,500 RPM most of the time. That's, that's cool. All right, guys. Uh, let's jump into the show. There's a couple of topics that we have listed here. Canon has thrown, down, thrown their hat into the mirrorless market, so we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, a photographer's Instagram photos. We're going to talk about how some people are... Well, we're, we'll dive into Instagram. Let's just say that. Um, and then there's a new site that's been devoted to catch photo thieves. Plus, um, in the show, we're going to have an interview inserted with Gavin Syme. He's going to, we had a great conversation with him, or I had a great conversation with him about the zone system. So really, really smart guy. And, uh, he has some interesting, interesting thoughts on photography in general and how photographers are positioning themselves. So, and also just want to throw out there, like I mentioned before, when I was talking to Joseph, Mac OS 10 Mountain Lion was released today for those in the audience who care about Mac or Apple and that stuff. So that's out there. Who are you all, all you guys have Apple, have Apple products, right? I'm assuming. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Who has upgraded? I have. Is that Joseph? Not me. Crazy. 
That's yeah. crazy, man. I'm sorry, you are crazy. I mean, <laughs> totally yeah. crazy. Yeah, you know, you gotta, you gotta let the, do. you gotta let the fools rush you know, in, man. What's the worst that could possibly happen? Oh, scorched <laughs> well, earth, maybe. I'll tell you I don't in my know. Case, the worst that could possibly happen. I just got one of these new MacBook Pros, which is just phenomenal, absolutely amazing. Uh, but, uh, and it came with lion, not, not even mountain lion. And when I turn the thing on, I rely on this sprint, uh, 4g card to get the internet, uh, when I'm out and about, which is quite a bit and it wouldn't work because they didn't have a uh, software built for lion. So well, I can't yeah, imagine they'll have it built for mountain lion. So that was a, it's a 32 bit, um, application. Well, they, the they, they had kind of a workaround hack that you could do in 32-bit, but it didn't really work. And I had to right. play around with it for like two hours. And then finally, I got some other device driver thing to work, and but barely. And it, I mean, it's not officially supported. And so, I don't know. It's like I really rely on that Sprint connection. And if I mean, it's it sucks that Sprint can't keep up with the times. I mean, it's not like nobody knows this is coming out. I know, right? Wouldn't they have like a year lead time or something? You know? Right, yeah. But yeah. Virgin, Virgin Mobile has the same problem. Um, is it, they, they have a 32-bit. I think it might be the same. Now, Alex, did you did you upgrade? Um, you don't, you can't upgrade because you're like it's like changing a tire when you're driving, right? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the issue is, is that with live <laughs> events, if you know if, if something goes wrong and you're doing post production or you're fixing things, well, you know, you lose an hour or two. In a live event, you you know you lose the client or you lose the job or you know yeah. there's just a lot of people that are unhappy. So right. so a lot of times, a lot of the machines that I have are kind of in the middle of all of that, and so. Um, so we, I, I do have a new, a brand, one of the new retinas as well, which is just the most amazing machine I've ever owned. And, wow. and um, but, uh, but I'll probably hang on. I typically, I approach it as a, um, I wait for two updates. So the first update will come usually within 10 days of the, of a Apple release. Mm-hmm. And that's usually fixing all the things that they, <laughs> that either they decided this was the deadline and they had to, they had to release it and now they're going to fix everything else or just a whole bunch of things come up when thousands of people, when a thousand, you know, a hundred thousand or a million or two million people use it. Yep. And then they fix it and then they break a whole bunch of things when they fix that. So then they, um, so then the next step is to have, uh, they'll, they'll fix that. They'll do another round. And then after that, the fixes become less important. But I find that the first two patches are the most important patches of, of an update. And um, I usually will not touch updates until until I see that. And so, I, call um, that the, that's, I call that the squeaky wheel window. That's the window that right. enough applications that are important to people like Thomas, you know, they don't work. So they tell the world about them. So those things get fixed first. So I go in after the squeaky wheel has stopped squeaking. And then, right. <laughs> then I update. Yeah, Joseph, on the other hand, updated today. You're the you're the the guy that that stands in line, right? You did it. I did it. I did it. Well, it's it's more than just that. Since I'm running the Aperture Expert site, people on there, of course, are going to ask questions and they're going to want to know what's going on. And if I don't do it myself, then I'm just talking out of my rear. So I kind of have to jump into it just to help support them to make sure that everything is uh, is running on yep. the, you know for them and I can help out where I need to. Did you do it on a on your like main machine or on a test machine or production? Yeah, machine? typically what I'll do is I'll upgrade one machine but not the other, and I usually upgrade my main machine because you know just I, that's the only way you're going to really find stuff is if I'm using it all the time. Oh. And yeah, I, you know, obviously there's a bit of a, a bit of a risk in there, but worst case, I always do have another machine that I can jump back to. So there's got to be a better way. I don't know. I mean, and I am, I am going to upgrade one of my machines over the break. I mean, I, I do have to do that because in the same reason that Joseph has to do it, I, I need to do it for Mac break. So oh, right. the, over the next right. week, I will definitely upgrade, but um, not the, not the, I won't upgrade my mainline ones. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I'm going to do my air, but the, the machine I'm talking to you guys on now is my sort of, 
production machine. It's an IMAX sitting on my desk. But my Air, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm bouncing between them all the time, so it, it doesn't matter which one I upgrade. But I'm going to do <laughs> one of them. You know, I think the Air makes sense because that's the one that has the uh, AirPlay mirroring in it, right? It's it's enabled for that particular feature. So is it a new enough Air? It is. It is the newest Air. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I will. I'll turn that on. All right. Speaking of new stuff, Canon and getting back to photography, Canon has uh, announced the new EOS M mirrorless camera. So I'm glad Thomas is on the show because I want to. I want to I want to see if you're going to move away from the traditional DSLR that shows up in your avatar all over the world and move over to a little uh mirrorless job like this thing. It's only 18 megapixels. Yeah, no way, not for me. No, why not? Uh, Come on. Uh, you know, I I well for the 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 biggest reason is lenses. I mean, uh you know, I've invested a lot in uh Canon lenses and you know, I just couldn't couldn't live without my 135 f2. Mm. And, you know, they announced a couple of lenses with it, uh, I guess. But, uh, you know, it's still way, you know, it just doesn't have that sort of support, uh, the, the depth of glass. And I think that the lenses are so much of a part of it uh, for me. I mean, what, what do they got, a 22 millimeter F2? Yep. But you but, know there is an adapter to use your standard lenses. Yeah, but you know, I think it's for me. It's more than that as well. I mean, I like the high ISO stuff. I mean, this camera goes to sixty four hundred. It's expandable beyond that. But um, you know, the new Canon five D Mark III does you know much better than that. I think it has a better sensor with a larger sensor uh, with a full frame sensor and um, you know higher ISO stuff. Uh, you know, I'm just not I'm just not sure that the quality is anywhere near. The 5D Mark III with all the lenses I've got now. Yeah. where Do these small mirrorless cameras have a place in your camera bag at all, or are you just, you know, all DSLR or nothing? Yeah, pretty much I'm all DSLR or nothing. You know, I mean, I, I play around with the phone and shoot mobile stuff, too, sometimes. Um, but, you know, pretty much all DSLR uh, stuff for me. I just, you know, to me, it would be a step back. And, and what, do you, what are you really get, getting out of it? Uh, well, you're getting a small form factor. So, you know, if I'm going to be carrying around my big camera everywhere I go anyways, that that doesn't matter to me because I'm already carrying the big one. I've got two. Um, I mean, and I know some people like like Trey has been really big on these mirrorless cameras. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he loves his Nikon. Yeah. He talks about them all the time. And, you know, the, you know, maybe there is a place for that and you're shooting both at the same time. Uh, you know, I know he likes to take the little ones out to Burning Man and shoot out there and stuff and not have to worry about dust in the sensor and you know, stuff but you know for me i just i just feel more comfortable shooting my dslr actually and and i'm not gonna and i'm not gonna need that small form factor i mean there might be something to be said for well you know you're trying to do you know really covert street photography or you're trying to be inconspicuous or uh but i'm just uh, part of it's just you know the five i've been on dslrs for so many years and i'm just so comfortable and familiar with uh you know the Canon DSLR and all my lenses and all that stuff. I just, just I'm just not eager to move to something that I look at as an inferior product. Yeah, no, I hear you. And if you've, you've built up that muscle memory, and you, I mean, you've shot probably more pictures than than all of us combined times some big number, right? So, so you know, if you're if you've built up that muscle memory and you know what it takes intrinsically to get the particular look and shot that you're going for. And it's working for you, fine, you got a system, why rock the boat and add something new in there, right? Right. I mean, I do think a lot of people want a smaller form factor. 
You know, there are people that that that's that just don't want to carry around a DSLR. I mean, in fact, most people probably don't. I mean, I'm kind of an odd duck that way. Uh, most people, you know, this is I can see where there's value for this, and there's certainly a market for it. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's great that Canon's doing it, but it's just it's not for me. Yeah. Now, Alex, looking at the specs of this thing, like we said, 18 megapixels, um, but it's got full an, a full HD movie mode with um, with what full time AF, so a continuous focus tracking, and what you've been crying for on the show, you know, I guess a while ago when you were on, you were talking about having iOS style or smartphone style user interfaces on these things. So this has a 3.0 inch. Uh, touchscreen on it. So, do you see this camera replacing some of the things that that you use in your daily world for doing the streaming and that kind of thing? Could this actually kind of slot in and be a higher resolution optical capture device? Yeah, I mean, the, here's the problem with the, with the touchscreen uh, is that what I my, I'm a proponent that someone needs to build just a raw case for an iPhone. <laughs> I mean, like literally just a big big sensor that's controlled with an iPhone. And I think that the opportunity. See, I haven't been on for a long time, so I can say this like I've never said it before. <laughs> um, but the 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 issue is is that that it's it's much bigger than just a touch screen. The, the 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 concept is really that if you created an SDK that said anybody could control the camera via an iPhone, and then then you have all these iOS developers. What you would end up with is just an enormous number of literally specific apps that are that people write for time lapse or whatever that, that is just way more than the it, it would be you know way more than canon's going to think of or or, or want to put in there but people could build all kinds of specialty um applications in an iphone that would run the camera um you know and uh, and people you know it become its own little niche market in my opinion and so um and it just gets uh, one of the problems that i have that i find um i, I was um uh, in sydney with uh, mike seymour who uh, who runs fx phd and the VFX show and and uh, we were we were having uh, lunch and then we were walking around taking photos and he he was he he you know Ron has hung out with him and other people have hung out you know and he said it's really interesting to watch what different people use as the camera you yeah. know and and some people have these big cameras other people have little cameras and he said I and I was walking around with my iPhone you know because and the reason is because I'm I'm going to put it up on Twitter or something like that and I don't want to deal with capturing it on you know the, the photos that I was going to take I didn't expect them to be I, I did pull my big bigger camera out later. But a lot of the photos were something that I want the immediacy of being able to upload it, you know, from there. And I want it part of my larger library and my photo stream and all the other things that ha- come with my iPhone. Yeah. So I become very, I'm very attached. I would love to have the quality that I get with my 5D. But I, um, but you know, the iPhone is some, that's what, what's in my pocket. My biggest problem with the mirrorless cameras, I think, if someone's looking for a cost-effective way to do it and they're trying to keep everything a little smaller, I do think these make a lot of sense. But for me, the problem is, is that if I have an SLR. This doesn't replace – it's not as good as the SLR and it's not small enough that it just fits in my pocket. I'm still carrying it around. You know, it's not not tiny. Um, And so for me, if I can't fit it really in my pocket, um, then it's not going to be – it's not going to be something that just suddenly becomes something I carry around all the time. And so I I think that's the challenge. And so I um, – so I I, – again, I can see the use of it like – you know, like Thomas, I I, I see the use of it. I just don't – think this would be something that I would get. Yeah, and this you bring up a good point too and it's the the purpose of the photos. Like when you're out, you're you're in a you're in Australia for business and you happen to take some time to take some photos, but right. you're not shooting for stock and you're not going to do anything with these photos like sell them or anything. Right. Thomas on the other hand, not that you, Thomas not that you shoot for stock, but your images will probably have a wide variety of uses beyond just putting on Twitter and that kind of thing, right? Oh, sure, yeah. No, I sell images and sell stock for sure and 
Uh, I do want that quality. Although, you know, I, I think that I think that you can still get pretty good quality out of these things and probably even good enough to sell for, uh, you know, a lot of stock use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I just, you know, to, to me, it's just, you know, I want to get the best picture I can. And I just don't think I'm going to get a better picture with one of these than I'm going to get with my DSLR. And it just doesn't bother the larger form factor just doesn't bother me. Now, Joseph Linaska, you made the jump into mirrorless cameras a while ago, or did you? Am I mistaken there? No, you're right. Yeah, yeah I've been I've been carrying a, one of these smaller cameras for many years now, starting with the Olympus Pen back in I think 2009 or so. Right, right. And what? So you are AKA your alter ego is the travel junkie. So you're always bouncing around the world, taking photos and and doing that sort of thing. Is do these smaller form factors make that easier for you, or is it, or or are these cameras just an adjunct to your DSLR? Well, they're an adjunct. Uh, it's rare that I would go somewhere without the DSLR, meaning go on, go to a location, go on a trip, go to you know Vietnam or whatever. Uh, but I'm probably going to carry both cameras. Now, when I go out in the street to shoot, what I'm going to do will depend, will determine which camera I'm going to take. And I don't always want to have the big camera with me because I don't always want to be Joseph the photographer. I just want to be Joseph the tourist going out, having a good time. But I do want to be able to get some great shots better than what I might be able to get with my iPhone. But I just don't want to have to carry the big camera around. It's just not, it's just not the mode that I'm in, if you will. So I do, and you know, now I have the the Fuji X100, which is a really great camera. It, it really is, but it's very finicky, and it's uh, honestly I'm not using it as much as I used my GF1 before that, the Panasonic uh, Lumix GF1. But you know, they all have their place, and I think as far as the product and the market goes, I think that it's going to be very successful because it is it, it is that step up from the point and shoot. And these days, there just isn't much of a point in owning a point and shoot if you if you own a smartphone, if you own a uh, an iPhone or even some of these other Android phones out there that have really good cameras in them, it's almost like, what's the point of having a point-and-shoot? Mm-hmm. But if you don't want to step up to the full DSLR, just for your average consumer who just doesn't want to go that big or that expensive, for $800, this is a hell of a camera. Yeah, but Joseph, come on, let's let's be real. You have a, you have a big DSLR, you have an iPhone, which takes reasonably good pictures. This camera or these small cameras are really your fa- your fashion accessory for the photographer. Come on, come on. <laughs> well, it, it, it does kind of become that way, and that's honestly that's one of the reasons that the X100 is so appealing because it it looks cool, right? It's this kind of interesting camera to carry around. That's not a point and shoot. It's not a big DSLR. It's this cool camera that I can shoot with. It's kind of fun, and I enjoy using it. Um, th- but that is one of the detractors for me on this camera. It has no optical viewfinder, which is a real drag for me. I don't like holding the camera out in front of my face, looking at the back of the screen. Oh, and yeah. it it doesn't have manual knobs on it. I like the X100's big, you know, you've got a big knobby uh, shutter speed control. You've got a, a proper ring for adjusting your aperture. This doesn't have any of that. So it really is just a glorified iPhone. And at that point, you know, yeah, it's going to get a better picture than my iPhone, but uh, it's not worth it to me, to me. It's just not worth it. So it sounds like the consensus overall is, yeah, it's all right. You know, we'll we'll wait and see. Who's no one's buying this thing, right, Joseph? If anyone's going to buy it, it's going to be you, right? Yeah, and I'm not going to buy it. You're not going to buy it. <laughs> right. No, I I like the idea. It's just it's not for me. I think it'll be a very successful camera. I think for a lot of users, it's a really really good option. And for a lot of our listeners who are you know, obviously not professionals, who are just who are adva- amateurs or advanced amateurs and just want to do something better than a point and shoot, better than their iPhone, but for whatever reason don't want to make the jump into full DSLR, I think this is a fantastic option. All right. We'll leave it at that. Um, we'll link over to this. Just real quick, the specs on this, 18 megapixels, APS-C, CMOS sensor, 
Um, like I said before, it has a full HD movie mode with movie servo AF for continuous focus tracking. It's got a touchscreen ISO 100 to 6400, a Digic 5 processor. It's going to retail for around $800, and it'll come with an EFM 22mm f2 lens. And the rumor is it will be available in October, just in time for Christmas. So uh, check it out. All right, guys. The next thing that I want to chat about here is Instagram. So uh, this next story, I know you guys are all looking at the show notes, but this next story is about a Sports Illustrated. We're all familiar with that magazine. Featured 18 baseball photographs by Brad Mangin, photographer Brad Mangin, across six opening pages, but they were all Instagram photos. So my question is, like Alex, Alex is a guy that goes to interesting places with just his iPhone taking photos. A, were these iPhone photos or were these DSLR photos that were uploaded to Instagram? <laughs> um, and is this the time now? I mean, is it, is, has the iPhone and these lower resolution images hit the mainstream and it's time to, it's really not the camera anymore. It's the photographer. Alex, what do you think? I think it's always been the photographer. I don't, you know, I remember just, uh, I was talking to somebody actually who was, who was with you and you took a photo and they, and they said, yeah, he did it. He, I said, that was a great photo. And they said, yeah, he's got a great camera. And I was like, well, okay. So he actually knows how to use it too. Did you I know? punch and, him and in I, the nose? Did I punch him in the nose? Know, <laughs> and I had, um, the, the, the interesting thing is, is that, you know, I, I have a friend, um, Ian McKay, who's an incredible hand, you know, he's a draw, uh, uh an artist you know as far as drawing and, and he does a lot of character design for star yeah. wars and everything else and remember he, he once told me he said if anyone ever complains about their pencil i know they're not very good you know you know it's just you know that's not you know that's not you know they say they can't get it done because they don't have the right tools you know a good photographer is a good photographer because they're capturing that moment really effectively they're, they're getting the right angle they're getting the right positioning and, and, and the tool that they use obviously will improve it and make it more sellable and refine it but uh, it's totally possible to, to capture a lot. I, th- I think that the, 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 what we saw with Instagram, I think, is uh, um, uh, you know, totally could could be shot in an iPhone. Was it? I'm not. You know, I don't know. Uh, I, I think it's. I, th- I think that it's. Um, uh, the, the the point is is that it's it's really about the framing. It's about the timing. It's about getting all the composition right, and that can be done with you know with anything. Yeah, <laughs> you know, no, anything, totally that, anything that captures an image. I totally agree. You know, I, you're you're preaching to the choir because that's what I say. It's yeah, yeah. Having more technology will allow will open certain situations to you that weren't available to you before. But without having that mastery of light and composition, exposure, and just the basics of photography, you you got nothing, right? You're just shooting you're shooting in manual. So, Joseph, what do you what do you think about this? I mean, is is this the time for just any any current device to be sort of a real i'm holding up quote fingers a real camera <laughs> oh yeah it's it's like alex says and we've always said on the show it's it's all about the photographers not about the equipment and i'm looking at the pictures now and and they're great and in my mind there's no question that these are iphone pictures so you don't have that shallow depth of field that would telltale mm-hmm. someone with a dslr yep. um they look like iphone photos to me that have been processed through instagram and a variety of other tools and he lists on on the website on his blog post he's using uh Things like Snapseed and Camera Plus. And, you know, I absolutely love shooting this way myself. And I mentioned earlier, I'm not using that X100 quite as much as I thought I would. A big part of it is because I am using the iPhone and Instagram and other tools like this so much. The images look great. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, just go for it. And the fact that they're being featured in 
SI is uh, pretty fantastic. I'd be curious to know how they printed it because the the images that are actually saved out of Instagram are quite low res. I think they're 604 pixels or something like that. So they're really quite low. Uh, so I'm a little curious about that. But what I'm seeing on screen here looks fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it does look great. It's it's really interesting it's just, to, just to see the direction where things are going. And you know, that's what you say brings up a good point for me because the main reason why I never made the jump into those to that you know the the, the APS-C size smaller body cameras is because my iPhone fills that gap so well. You know, right. I, f- I feel like plus you know I'm still a luddite with my G9, but you know <laughs> plus you know it's like. When I'm when I'm out and about, I have my iPhone with me, and I can shoot, edit, and share from right there. Or I'm going to have one of my DSLR bodies with me, and mm-hmm. you know, like Thomas says, I'm familiar with that. If I'm going to do serious photography, and I want that level of crispness or bokeh or whatever, I can I can pull out that thing. So, Thomas, okay. what about you? I mean, do you uh, now look, looking at this your body of work? Yeah. I mean, you have more images out there than many stock agencies have. Would you? Yeah. Would you? Do you see yourself moving into adding these lower resolution iPhone type images into your sort of cache of images? Yeah, I think so. I've got some in there now. Um, I do shoot occasionally. I, I'm, I, you know, I made the switch a few years back from uh, iPhone to Android. So I'm using Android now, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I don't use it as much, but I certainly, uh, one, I think the fact that this, uh, that this is featured in sports illustrated is fantastic. I think that, that these are absolutely legitimate photos uh, a good friend of mine, Troy Holden, uh, you can find him on Instagram under Troy Holden, has done some wonderful, wonderful work uh, with his iPhone. I mean, wonderful street portraits running around the tenderloin. I mean, really compelling stuff. And, you know, I think it, it harkens back to the days of people running around with Holgas and Dianas and these cheap little film cameras and uh, stuff like that. And taking some wonderful, uh, interesting, dynamic photographs. And, I mean, it just goes to show you, again, that uh, so little of it is about the gear and so much of it is about the creative spirit of the person using the gear. And, and we have to. One of the things we have to remember is that I mean, it's an eight megapixel camera. I mean, when I bought my first, S, you know, my, my first SLR was a six megapixel camera. I mean, it, it, these. I mean, we're getting a lot of incredible images, uh, you know, out of these. I mean, just a lot of cameras that we would have owned ten years ago for a lot more money will do not will not produce the picture that we get out of a nor the sharing capability, right? Yeah, yeah. That's right. Then, I mean, we we did a photo walk uh, last year in Austin uh, with Dell, and. Um, uh, they had some prizes that we were able to give away. They did a bunch of prizes. And the first place prize, uh, we did a photo contest of the walk, uh, went to Emma Hollingsworth. Some of you might know Jack Hollingsworth. He's a yes. big yeah, fo- photo photo name online. But yeah. Jack Jack's daughter, Emma, who I think was like 14 or 15 or something, shot the winning photograph with an iPhone. So, And everybody's out there with these big you know, DSLRs and doing all this stuff. And they could process them and upload them right there, and we and we judged it blind. It was all judged completely blind, so we didn't know whose photo was whose or who shot what. And uh, she ended up winning first place. So, you know, I, I love this. I think it's great, and because you know, every time people start talking about gear and uh, how great their gear is and how important gear is, and uh, I mean, I appreciate the capabilities of my DSLR system as well, but. I just I just love seeing photos taken on phones that turn out so well. I love that, and I think th- this is a great a great point because it for me it comes back to like Alex was saying these cameras that are embedded in these smartphones, whether it's an iPhone or whatever, right? Are 
exponentially better than what we had back in the old days, right? Right. And couple that with the fact that everyone pretty much has one of these things, so it's democratized, right? So, which means... If you go out there with your DSLR, you're going to stand out like a sore thumb. Like, oh, look at that guy. He's serious. He's taking photos, you know. But if you whip out your iPhone, you're just another one of the masses. And the only thing that differentiates you is your skill, right? So now you can blend in and get those shots that everybody else could get if they knew how. But you can get them because you have the talent and the skill and the understanding of the fundamentals of photography to get it. So that's it's an interesting sort of shift that's going on. And this... this um, Sports Illustrated thing, I think it's kind of a, it's a line in the sand that's saying, hey, you know, the time has come, but we'll have to keep an eye on it. The other thing is, uh, the other adjunct of the story is there's a service out there <laughs> called buyinstagramlikes.net um, that for $50 will, or is it $90? $90 will allow you to buy a thousand followers and for $50, they'll get you guaranteed 500 likes of your photograph. So to me, this looks sort of dishonest and underhanded, but does it matter, right? I mean, if you're a photographer that wants to get your work seen and you got 50 bucks, is it expensive? Well, are you really getting your work seen or are you just, built, you're just bumping your numbers? I mean, I don't yeah. think that, that buying you know, names is necessary. It's not like buying people that are interested in what you're doing. It's just right. getting a bigger number so that you can say that 3000 people, you know, 30,000 people are following. Like we'll, you we'll reroute that highway by next to your billboard for 10 minutes. Right. Who cares if they look at it? <laughs> and will they even look at it? I mean, where are these people coming from? I mean, is it, it sounds like you're just getting basically filled up with dummy accounts. Right. You know, it's, yeah. it's not, it's not anything that means anything. So, I mean, it's, I mean, I, I don't have, I don't have near the following that many people have on G plus or on Twitter, but, but I have a very high, very reactive audience that, that goes to a lot of the things that I'm, that I'm, you know, I, you know, I kind of track a lot of that stuff and, and there's just a, you know, there, it's a very dense audience and that's all I care about. I mean, I don't care about the, the sheer numbers just don't mean anything. Yeah. Yeah. Not anymore. Yeah. Cause this, this service could have hired Amazon mechanical Turk to go in there and like right. things, right, on an automated basis. Thomas, and you know it'll get shut down. I mean, it won't get shut down, but it'll be... Um, they'll regulate it somehow, right? Well, I mean, you know, there's a lot of algorithms that, that uh, search sites like Google and so on and so forth use. And, and you know, you, when you start manipulating the numbers, typically the algorithms um, tend not to be friendly. Yeah. <laughs> to, you know, because their, their job is to find meaningful responses, whether it's Bing or, or Google or whatever it is. They're looking for meaningful responses, and you having a whole bunch of followers that you bought is, is not a meaningful response. So, of course, they're going to schedule it out. Right. Now, Joseph, what do you think about this? Buying buying likes or buying followers or pins or whatever. You think that's uh, – is that a good thing? Is, tra- is buying traffic a good thing? I, I think it explains a lot of the followers that I have seen on Instagram with a huge following that are producing crap work. <laughs> It's million, it's, it's, millionaires it's throwing down money, I mean, right? <laughs> okay, I get it as a marketing tool. And if, if you're going to use Instagram as a marketing tool and I'm going to be posting marketing for my product on there, then fine. It's just advertising. It's any other form of advertising. And presumably buying these likes and followers is going to get you more eyeballs. But if you're going on Instagram as, you know, hey, I want to share my photos. It's kind of maybe even self-promotion a little bit as a photographer, but I'm trying to share my art. It just seems kind of tacky to me. I don't even think it buys you more eyeballs. I think what it does is if you want to tell advertisers that you have this many followers or if you want to find sponsors, I think the idea is you can say that, you know, you have, you look at, look at my, my G plus page or my, my Twitter site or whatever. And, 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 and it's going to, 
you've inflated your numbers. And so um, an, an unrefined advertiser might think that that's really impressive that you have 300,000 you know, right. And I really, I wonder how they're really doing it because I, I went onto their website and I looked around a little bit and it, they do point out that they're not creating dummy accounts and that they are not violating any terms of service and that it's all legitimate. But I, I mean, what do you do? Are you paying somebody else to follow you? Is there yeah, another service mean, saying get paid to follow Instagram followers dot yeah, net? Pro- there probably is. Yeah, it's probably a whole bunch of people in India that have, you know, that have these accounts and they get paid to, you know, follow people. <laughs> you <laughs> Thomas, know, that's, Thomas that's where, do you, where do you fall on this? Because you, you've got, you know, a, a ton of followers on, on most social networks. I don't know how big you are on Instagram, but, you know, you've worked presumably really hard to build the audience that you have. What do you feel about somebody going in that, you know, made some extra money on Apple stock or something and buying a bunch of followers to, to try to catch up to you? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's ridiculous. I think, um, first of all, I don't think it's at all effective. I think, you know, you can buy followers, whatnot. These are not people that you even want following you. I mean, part part of having followers and part of, uh, you know, social networks and part of being a part of the community is engagement. And and you want people not just to like your photo. You want to have a relationship and you want to talk to people. And I think some of the most successful people that I've seen online, whether they have, uh, you know, uh, 200 followers or 2,000 followers or 20,000 or 2 million followers, it's, it's how often they engage and interact and work and, and hang out with people. And I think, I think when, you, when you sort of buy this, one, what are you really getting? Yeah, maybe you're getting some credibility that can dupe some advertiser into, or some sponsor into thinking that you're a bigger deal than you are. Uh, but even that, I mean, really, I mean, a thousand followers on Instagram, you know, if you have, uh, you know, 9,000 or 2,000 or, or 12,000, I mean, does it really matter? I mean, how many people have this many followers? There are so many people with that many followers. I think it's kind of a meaningless metric. And I think it's, I think it's also just bad precedent. You know, you, you, every now and again, you hear about people on Twitter, oh, so-and-so celebrity or politician or, or somebody was sort of caught buying followers. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, I think it leaves a bad taste in people's mouth. I mean, um, so I don't know. I, I think it's kind of deplorable. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Deplorable. We'll, we'll quote you as that. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas Hawk says, it's, your business is deplorable. <laughs> I mean, anybody can do whatever they want, right? Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I, I shouldn't talk bad about these people. I just, I just think it's you know, I think part of being online and part of being a part of the conversation and a part of the community is a certain amount of authenticity. Yeah, yeah. And 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 this is just you know, like you say, it's mechanical Turk, most likely. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and it just it, I don't see any value in that. I don't see anything authentic coming out of that. I don't see any sort of real. It's not like these people are are following you because they really appreciate your work and they want to see more of it and. Uh, you know, they're they're following you because you bought them. They're they're digital escorts, is what right. they are. <laughs> Maybe that'll be the title of this episode. Uh, so, so you can buy all female followers. <laughs> I don't know, or all male, depending on how you how do you you know you bet. Um, all right, guys. Uh, we I want to take a, a moment here to give a nod to our sponsor, and I want to give the opportunity to say hello to our sponsor, to Alex Lindsay. Because he hasn't been here in forever, and he has that sultry tone. Alex, who is sponsoring This Week in Photo this week? Well, of course, uh, we know Squarespace is our sponsor this week. And, um, you know, it's, it is a, uh, it's easy to talk about Squarespace because both Pixcore and DB Garage are, um, 
our um, Squarespace sites. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so we, you know, we definitely uh, use it. And what's great about it, of course, is that, you know, it's it is a um, it's a site that basically you can design what you want, and it can all be WYSIWYG. You don't have to know anything about code or anything else. And you just put it together. You can make it look the way you want it to look uh, without writing all that code. If you have, you know, if if you actually um, can code, of course, you can add all that customization in as well. So if you want to add e-commerce or or some more complex things that are very customized to what you need, all of that's there as well. So it's it really goes both directions. And there's a new the new Squarespace is pretty amazing. I mean, they have a um, yeah, I got that email. I want to hear about that. Yeah, yeah. so it's it it uh, we've just started to dig into it ourselves, um, but it's been in beta for a while, and um, basically the new Squarespace is just a lot faster and easier. Everything is drag and drop. You can you know, there's a new page builder called the Layout Engine that just really enables you to customize pages. So in, in seconds you're adding blocks of content like photos and videos and text and social media content and all of that stuff is just you're just dragging it in. So if if again if you're a lot of photographers are out there going, I need to have a website. I need to put this up. I don't know anything about HTML. I don't have the money to hire someone. I don't, I don't know what to do with servers. I don't know how to publish my site. I don't, all of that stuff is stuff that stops people from, from just getting out there and showing what they can do. And so this is something that just takes all of that out of there. The, 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 serv- the, the servers are handled in the cloud. That you're not, You don't have to know anything about servers. You just design your site and you make it, make it live and it's live. You know? And so... Um, you know, it, and, and not only is it the, the templates are set up now for the web, but they're also set up, they're all mobile ready. So, um, you know, so now you can, you know, it's automatically going to restructure your site to any, any, you know, any, any size device. Um, so, so really like all of that stuff is being done for you and that takes a lot of work. That's huge. That's yeah. huge. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so the, the problem of, Hey, there's Android, there's iPhone, there's iPad, there's, you know, jelly bean this, whatever that, you know, how do I make my site look the best on everything out there? Now you don't have to worry about it, right? Exactly. And so, so it's really just a great place to get started. So, uh, you know, if, if, again, if, if you're trying, if you're stopped, if, you're, if you want to figure it out, it's $16 a month. I mean, when you think about like that's and that's for the unlimited version and, uh, you know, your site isn't going to go down. I mean, we have this in, on Mac break because we're running live and there's lots of people watching. We have to be really careful. I mean, we, we start mentioning sites and the, the sites just phew, disappear. You know, they, they, <laughs> they literally get 404. You know, and they just, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the servers just kind of melt down. And so uh, the great thing about um, uh, a Squarespace site is you're sitting on these, this, this distributed network uh, that can handle that kind of thing. So if you get that, that moment in the sun, you don't you know, burn up in the atmosphere. So it's, it's just a really great um, – you can get a free trial if you want. You can go to squarespace.com slash TWIP. That's T-W-I-P. So squarespace.com slash TWIP. Sign up for a free account. You don't need a credit card or anything else. Uh, if you decide you want to purchase it, um, do us a favor and use TWIP7. Uh, that's uh, TWIP, uh, T-W-I-P-7. And you'll get 10% off your first purchase on new accounts. And this is, is both the, month, the monthly and annual plan. And so, uh, so, and don't forget that you know, it's free domain registration with the annual plan subscriptions. And so, um, definitely check it out. Um, and and remember that if you're a current Squarespace customer, you can convert your accounts and content to the new Squarespace. Um, you know, whenever you decide to. So it's it's something that you can keep on moving forward. Uh, so go once again, go to squarespace.com/twip and use the offer code twip7. Perfect. Now, Joseph, you're you're the man behind ApertureExpert.com, which is a Squarespace.com site, right? That it is. Did you move it over to this new layout engine, or do you have plans to? No, I can't yet. Um, Squarespace 6 is is not feature parity with Squarespace 5, and 
uh, it's a fantastic, fantastic new service, and I'm probably going to be moving my photography blog over to that. But it doesn't have the forums yet, and the forums are one of the biggest parts of, of Aperture Expert. So, uh, no, unfortunately, I can't move it over quite yet. Got it. Got it. Cool. Well, uh, you're my you're my canary in the coal mine. I want to keep an eye on you and see how things go over there. So. <laughs> Cool. All right, Thomas, I wanted to, before we move on to this interview, I wanted to chat with you a little bit about your letter to Marissa Meyer, the newly appointed um, CEO of Flickr that was formerly of Google. Um, So tell me, tell me what, for for the folks that may not have read that letter yet, where is it and what, what was your goal behind writing it? Okay, well, you know, Marissa Meyer, obviously, she's the new CEO of Yahoo. She's Google employee number 20. She's very savvy on how the Internet works. Uh, She's the new hope, as in Obama-type hope for Yahoo. Um, You know, there's been a ton of news articles about her coming out. I'm a big fan of Marissa's. I think think it's exciting that she's over there. Uh, You know, I expect great things. And, um, you know, I've written... Uh, a number of letters, open letters to Yahoo CEOs in the past. And, you know, basically my view is, uh, you know, they've done nothing with Flickr. They've done nothing significant and meaningful. And if you look, if anything, you know, under Carol Bartz, for instance, you know, they laid a third of Flickr off. Yeah. You know, they're getting rid of people. And, you know, if you look at compete.com, the numbers are down. Um, You know, the innovation for years had stalled. I mean, there was nothing by way of innovation. And, you know, I think it was kind of a combination of Yahoo leadership and kind of uh, Flickr leadership as well. Um, There was just no enthusiasm for the site. There was no growth going for the site. There was no improvement. Um, I'm probably more optimistic than I've been in a long, long time. But why is that? Why do you, why do you think the, the, the administration under this new leader will be different than it was under Bart's? Well, well, for starters, look, Bart's, Bart's laid off like a third of Flickr staff. Yeah. Uh, maybe not a third. I don't know. There was a, 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 a lot of yeah. layoffs uh, at Flickr under Bart's. Uh, if you go to the jobs page, and by the way, I thought, you know, there was that internet meme that caught on with everybody about, you know, dear Mercer Meyer, please make Flickr awesome again. And then I thought Flickr's had a sort of a brilliant response, which was, you know, hey, you want to make Flickr awesome again? Come work for us, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ride the and, wave. Yep. But, but, I mean, look at the job offerings right now. They're hiring. There's, there's like open positions in every category, in community management, in design, in engineering. They're hiring. And so, you know, in a, at a time when, uh, you know, you, some people might, may look at Yahoo and say, well, this is kind of a bloated, uh, you know, there's too many people working here. We've got to cut. We've got to focus on what's important. Um, you know, I think Flickr is one of the most important things at Yahoo, and I think it's Something, you know, uh, photos are becoming more and more important for, for every Internet company, I think. I mean, photos feature front and, cent- cent- front and center for Google+. Plus. I mean, if you look at the mobile app, it's all about photos. You look at what Facebook's doing, the photos are bigger, timeline photos are bigger. Uh, you know, everybody is getting into photos. And I think, I think Marissa's a little more savvy than some of the other CEOs. And I think she's uh, will probably, it may take her a while because she's not even on Flickr yet, and I've been critical of her for that. Because she's off sharing her photos on, of course, Instagram, like, <laughs> and she's not even using Flickr. So I am hopeful that maybe she'll make a splash in a big way there. I hope you know she's pregnant, and that people have made a lot of big deal about that. And 
I'm hoping maybe the first baby pictures we see from her will be on Flickr. All right. That's the gauntlet being thrown down. So let's see if they show up on Instagram, a Facebook property, or on <laughs> or on Yahoo. That's, well, that's really interesting. I was critical to Carol Bartz in an open letter to her saying, you know, again, because in listening on the analyst uh, earning conference calls, you know, she would talk about how her daughters used Facebook for photos and isn't it great and, you know, all that. But Flickr wouldn't get a mention. So – I do think the other real positive thing at Flickr that's changed is I think Marcus Spearing, who is their general manager of Flickr, the product manager now, um, I, yeah, I think his heart is really in the right place. And I think he is um, – you know, in the past, I, I, I've been kind of at odds with some of the Flickr management. Um, you know, I felt that they really weren't doing much. And I think he's – I think his heart really is in the right place. I think he really does want to expand Flickr. So part of the problem, I think, has been Flickr management. Part of it's been Yahoo's not wanting to, to allocate resources and grow it. I, I, you know, I think you got good Flickr management now. I think you potentially got obviously Yahoo saying go ahead and hire. Uh, yeah, I think, and I and I and I'm hopeful that Marissa Meyer will be more uh, that she'll understand the significance and the importance of uh, Flickr uh, more than more than some of the other past CEOs. Okay, so then to close this off, what? What once she turns her her lens over to Flickr, what would be the first thing that you would say she needs to do, other than hire new people? Yeah. Wow, yeah. Um, well, there's, I mean, there's so much, really. I mean, I think obviously they need a first class mobile site. Um, you know, the Flickr mobile site today is terrible. So much of how people are interacting online with photos is happening on the mobile. They need a super easy way for people to just you know fave photos and scroll through photos very rapidly. Um, I think they need to do a ton of work on groups. Uh, they need better blocking tools, better filtering tools. I think they need circles like Google Plus has or, you know, on Twitter and Facebook they have lists. They need some way to organize our contacts into buckets. You know, here are my night photographer friends. Here are my San Francisco photographer friends. Here are my, you know, uh, black and white photographer friends. They they need new ways for us to categorize and organize our contacts. Like, you know, circles on Google Plus is just brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So, so would would you would you consider going over to at least consult with them on on what their next step should be? Oh, I'd be happy to at any time. Uh, you know, I'd be happy to at any time talk to them uh, about I'm happy to talk to anybody. I mean, I've spent time down with Google and Google Plus and Google Photos folks, and I spent time with the Facebook Photos team. And, and I've even gotten to know Marcus a little bit better here now uh, and have spent some time with him, um, you, you know, in the past year or so. So, yeah, I'm, I'm always happy at any time to, um, you know, offer my own views and ways that I can improve so i'm i'm never one to keep quiet and keep my opinions to myself very good (laughs) all right cool that's good keep it that way again ralph nader ladies and gentlemen (laughs) so we'll, we'll we'll leave that particular piece at that right now i want to dive into this interview that i did um a while back with gavin syme from syme studios he and i discussed the art and history of photography and we dive or dove into some deep discussion about just light theory and the zone system. So check it out. All right, I'm here with Mr. Gavin Syme. He's a portraitist, a pictorialist, and a podcaster, you know, all that stuff. A little bit of everything. A little bit of everything. As I would say, as you guys know on This Week in Photo, I would call him a multimediographer extraordinaire (laughs) even. But he does all this cool stuff. Um, It's a sin that we haven't talked before. I mean, Gavin has been doing a lot of stuff that parallels what This Week in Photo is doing, what I'm doing, all this stuff. So we're correcting that now and aligning with Gavin. He's going to come on 
TWIP regularly. We're doing this That'd interview, all this stuff. So uh, we are now we are now connected. So Very Gavin cool. Syme, welcome finally to This Week in Photo. Thank you for having me. I'm actually really glad to be here. I'll be honest, years ago when This Week in Photo started, because I started podcasting in 2006, but, I, but I'm a piker. I'm just kind of out there on my own. And I remember when This Week in Photo started, it was, you know, you guys were involved with like the Twit Network and stuff like that. So it kind of took off really fast. Yeah. And admittedly, I was a little jealous because I'm like, you know what? They've been going like two weeks and I've been like slaving over this thing for two years. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I would listen and, and the, the content was good. I had, I had no complaints, but, I, but there was a little bit of greenness there because I'm just like, you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know, so I very, know. Very happy to be here. You know, I'm sure, yeah, there, there's, I'm happy to have you here, too, but, you know, it, it's all timing, right? It's all timing. Well, and, but, and, and it's, it's a busy world, you know? It is, it is. So you are, you're doing a lot of stuff, and it's so much stuff that we probably won't get a chance to talk, get to it all on this interview, but I want to, I wanna, there's, some, there's some, like, things that stick up above the, the waterline that I want to talk about, you and that's, you've done some work around the zone system, which oh, is... Yeah. <laughs> the system that Ansel Adams sort of developed and all that. Yeah, you're holding up a negative there, <laughs> four by five negative. Um, I want to talk about. I know you're you're passionate about the art and the history behind photography, which is, you know, for a lot of photographers, uh, just a void, right? It's like, oh, hey, I got a camera, and it's this point forward. It's you right. know, behind us is all gone, but let's let's march forward. And then I also want to talk. I'm going to start off. I want to start off talking about. You know, I introduced you as the portraitist and a pictorialist. You know, I, I want to understand, what is that? What does that mean? You know, I know what a portraitist is, but a pictorialist, and why have you branded yourself that way? So let's, let's start with that. What, what's sure. the history of that? Well, a, a, a portraitist, you know, in 2009, I was at a point with my photography where I, at the time I thought I was getting pretty good. And, you know, I, I kind of started getting involved in, in the state organization, entering professional competitions, that sort of thing. And, and by and by, I went to this uh, week-long conference on kind of raising the bar and, and but focused on selling wall art the premise of of this conference called wall portrait conference and it was it's headed up by Ken Whitmire who's who's in his 80s he's been running this thing for like 30 years and and he was a a big name in uh, you know back in the, in the film days and he still is you just don't hear about him as much frankly as I as I think we should but I went to this conference that was based on this premise of of, you know, what are, what are we doing? Let's look back at history. Let's look at what painters did. You know, you go back to Sargent and, and these kind of guys that were working, working in, in the different mediums. And really, we inherited our profession as, as portraitists. Portrait photographers inherited our profession from the painters. It kind of went from, mm -hmm. uh, from them to us. And, and it's, I guess, in a nutshell, you know, this premise is here... We inherited this profession. We started out, you know, with these early on, and we could make contact prints, and prints were small, and things quickly evolved, and now we've got these amazing tools, and yet we're still kind of stuck in the rut of, hey, let's make 8x10s and 5x7s and sell them to people. And, you know, then lo and behold, digital comes along. Suddenly everyone can make 8x10s and 5x7s, so there, there's a struggle there for the, for the person that's trying to be in the business of it. Um, but it's... So I started studying this pretty in depth of yeah. what's involved in putting, putting pieces on the wall. And that became pretty much the sole focus of my studio here. And then that turned into kind of studying the history and all this stuff and, st and considering everything right down to what I call myself, you know, right down to, okay, what is a photographer? Does, do we call Ernest Hemingway a typist? No. Right. I mean, he, he, he was a writer and, and photography and some people say, oh, well, you're kind of picking at straws. Okay, maybe I am. But we're in a world where, you know, everybody has a camera. 
and mm-hmm. a lot of them are photographers or, or they want to be photographers and fine. I mean, I understand it's cool to buy these cool cameras and all this stuff, but is, if you're trying to distinguish yourself and, and sell a product, I think it bears thought. I mean, to me, pics are something that cell phone takes yep. and, and photographs. I think we, it wasn't so long ago that there, there was a line that consumers understood the difference between a snapshot and a photograph. And I think we've kind of lost that a little bit in this Facebook age. So a long way around to saying, okay, uh, a portraitist. You know, a portraitist is, to me, a little more descriptive of what I do when I make a portrait. That ultimately led to, okay, why do I want to call myself a landscape photographer? Because mm-hmm. I do do landscapes. I love doing these kind of scenes, but they're not always landscapes. Sometimes they're city scenes and, and this and that or whatever mm-hmm. it may be, but ultimately I'm, I'm trying to put a, a beautiful piece on the wall. That's, that's my main focus. So then I kind of came up. I didn't come up with it. I thought, okay, why not use pictorialists? And, and people have made fun of me a little bit, but pictorialist, even though it may not be in the dictionary, is not a new word. It was actually used by some of the early photographers. I'm thinking around the mid-30s. I may have my date a little bit off, but Ansel Adams was actually early on part of a group, and they called themselves pictorialists, and they were a group that were, tr- that were trying to push the idea of you know, doing creative stuff with the negatives and, and mixing. You know, they, I think they do things like scratching negatives and trying to do textures and yeah. just trying to do, you know, trying to make more of an art form out of photography. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, Ansel Adams went away from that and, and tried, you know, kind of promoted himself as the more, the more natural photographer, although, as we know, he did a ton of work in the darkroom. So yeah. while I'm not mimicking necessarily the style exactly that they were doing back then, I thought, okay, here's a descriptive word. You know, if, if we call up, if, if a portraitist does portraits, a pictorialist does pictorial. So then mm-hmm. that led to me, you know, on my pictorials website, uh, I, I started calling myself an American pictorialist. And then I put that on my truck. And so I'm driving around the country with this sign that says, Gavin Sam, American pictorialist. And, and people are walking up to me asking me, hey, what's a pictorialist? And, uh, and so it, it's worked. Not that everybody needs to do the same thing. You know, I don't, I, I don't, think that we should all call ourselves an American pictorialist, but I think the word portraitist, pictorialist, yeah. I think those kind of things are, can be descriptive of, of what we do, and it's, it's branding, it's, it's, I guess to me it's the careful thought of how do we want to present ourselves. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, what we were talking about before, it's kind of like, you know, the, the, it, it reminds me of the, 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 the animated movie The Incredibles. You remember that? When, <laughs> oh, that was awesome. It's one of my yeah, when, when the, the evil villain at the end says he wanted to make everyone a superhero because when everyone is super, <laughs> no one is super, right? You know, when everyone has a camera, yep. everyone's yep. a photographer, right? So how, if, you're, if you call yourself a professional photographer, it's like you walk into a crowd and, you, and people are like, hey, what do you do? Oh, I'm a photographer. And it's, now it's like, Oh really? Yeah. So is my niece and yeah, my dad become, and my grandfather. You know. Exactly. So how do you how do you rise above that? Right. Know? So it's interesting. You know, I I love talking to you about this because it's interesting. Some people say that you have to rise above that by having better gear than that guy. So if that guy has a 70, then you need to have a 1D marker. You know. <laughs> so and that makes you a better photographer. But you're I love the way your your tack on it is. You're saying. You need to become an artisan, you know, right. and, it's a craft. And, and put your brain, be a craftsman of your work rather than just, you know, because the word photographer means, uh, somewhat, you know, capturing light, you right. know, you're graphing light. light. So, right. in essence, anybody with a camera phone is a photographer <laughs> now. Well, so, and, and that's the thing, and I'm sorry, go ahead, I'm interrupting. No, 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 go for it. It's, it's, uh, 
you know, sometimes people get annoyed with me because I, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit of a fanatic, okay, but I like to have fun with it too. I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't, I try not to be too stern about it, but at the same time, I say, hey, let's be realistic. You, it, this, it's an industry that's inundated, and if you're going to come in and say, oh, I'm going to be a photographer, I'm not going to, and this is, I do this on my podcast and on my posts, on, on my blog and stuff like that. I say, I'm not going to play games with you. You're, you're probably getting into the hardest business you could possibly get into right now if, if yeah. you're trying to make money at it, and let's, let's think about every angle. And we do need to study our craft. It's, it's weird to me that the art seems to be the only industry that work this way. I, I, some analogies I use is I say, well, you know, what if I carve a sliver out of my hand and then I go into the hospital and I say, hey, I took a sliver out last week. I'm a, I want to be a surgeon. Well, they're going to call security. You know, if, if, I, if I go into the airport with an air hogs and fly it around, they're going to yeah. arrest me and, or, or they're going to think I'm a, and say, hey, I want to be an airline pilot. I mean, yeah. so it's weird that in, in almost every other industry, we have to study first and then be a practitioner later, you know, it's okay to be an apprentice. It's okay to be learning. And it's, so that, I, I push that pretty heavy too, is, is why, I think a lot of people ruin photography for themselves because they think that simply because they have a camera, they have to go in the business. Well, mm-hmm. first of all, the business isn't for everybody. Some people just want to do it for the love of it. But yeah. also, maybe you don't want to be in business yet. Maybe you just want to enjoy it. And, and uh, you know, I mean, just if, if you're studying law, you probably don't want to be in the Supreme Court trying to argue a case on the third day mm-hmm. <laughs> and have no idea mm-hmm. what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm always thinking, you know, always, first of all, always trying to challenge myself, but also... Yeah. As an industry, I mean, how can we raise the bar? How can we change the consumer perception of, of here's a snapshot, and those are okay, those are great. There's nothing wrong with a snapshot, iPhones, all this stuff. I mean, I, I just came back with a, from a four-month road trip over the winter with my family, and I've got, you know, my iPhone right here. That was my snapshot camera, and just yeah. my 4S. It worked great, but, but I knew when I had that iPhone out, I wasn't considering that art, okay? And, and people say, well, art's in the eye of the beholder. Who are you to say? Okay, fair enough, but... When I pulled out my, my Mark II or my Linhoff and, or something like that, my perspective was different. On the one hand, I'm making a snapshot, and sure, I wanted the composition to be good and this mm-hmm. and that, and, mm-hmm. but it's, it's for Facebook. It's for my friends. And this over here, there was, a, there was a strong line in my mind of, okay, now I'm making a photograph. Yeah. Yeah, and you begin with the end in mind. Like if you, when, you're, when you're shooting with your iPhone, the end that, you're, that you either, or either subconsciously or consciously have in your head is, this is going to Facebook, so, you know, it's okay, you know, right. but when you're shooting with your larger camera, the end in mind that you, ha- you might have in your head is, hey, I might blow this up to 20 by 30 and put it on the wall, so let's, right. how, let's nail this. How, how about 40 by 60? Or 40 by 60. <laughs> <laughs> I see that printer behind you. I want that, by the way. That's, that's my printer, and that's a 65-inch print hanging over it, which, and, it's, and, and I, I really am, was heavily influenced and taught a lot about this and really inspired of this by Kim Whitmire, who's a master. I mean, you walk into this guy's studio and this is what, what family portraiture should be. I mean, you have 70-inch prints on the walls of families riding their horses through these golden pastures. And I mean, it just, it's, it completely changed the way I thought about photography when I quit thinking of myself as someone who takes pics and started comparing myself with what have we done throughout history? What did the painters do? How did we inherit that? What am I trying to accomplish? And how, how, is, how is it relevant? You know, Facebook likes are great, but... I want, you know, they don't pay the bills. And right. it's like art exactly. has become something that we appreciate on Facebook. How does that mean anything to history? I want to, and this may sound a little pretentious, but if I do a family portrait, I want it to be something that, that is, you know, at least the grandkids are fighting for 60 mm-hmm. years from now. And maybe that 100 years from now is hanging in the museum. Now, maybe that won't happen, but if I set that goal for myself to think about it in that way, it changes the way I look at it because I get away from this perspective of, you know, and just taking tons of photos because I can. I mean, I've gotten to the point sometimes where, you know, I'll go out and look at a scene and, I'll, and 
four by five has led strongly to this, but even with my digital, I'll take one or two frames of a scene and it, because I'll sit there and I'll think about it and I'll analyze composition and tone and visualize and think about what I want to do in the zones and all this stuff for 15, 30, you know, I think the longest I've spent sending up for a single photograph is about two hours. Wow. And That's it, great. It, and it was, it, it, it was my longest exposure ever. It was a, it was a two hour and 20 minute star trail. And, you know, normally we walk in there at night and we say, oh, I want to do star trails. And you kind of trip around over the bushes and try and figure out how to get your focus set up and where your mm -hmm. composition is. So I said, hey, what if, what if I parked the camper 100 yards away? This was up by the Grand Canyon. And then what if I, what if I really think about how I'm going to set this up in the daylight? And what happened is I'm walking around this tree and thinking about what the stars are going to do. And I just couldn't stop. I'm like, okay, well, this, this is good. But what if I change the perspective here? So pretty soon I'm like two hours in. I'm doing test frames. I'm taking them back to the trailer, checking my focus, making sure everything's good. I got everything set up exactly the way I wanted. Left the camera out there, you know, went back and roasted marshmallows with the kids. And, <laughs> and then came back and set up this exposure uh, once, once it was dark out, and it was, it was the best star trail I've ever done. And it, it, yeah. it, uh, you know, it, it made all the difference, that planning. Anyway, I get, rem I get it rambling. That reminds me of this, uh, well, just yesterday, we just recorded an episode of, episode 255, I think, of This Week in Photo, and the main topic, or our feature discussion, was about what I call deliberate photography, and that's exactly what you're describing, when you, yes. you know, instead of just like, hey, I'm going to grab my camera bag, I'm going out shooting, you know, you go out and you... Either you can either scout a location or sketch out what you're trying to get or, or in other words, be deliberate about what the shot is that you want to get and then exactly. go execute it rather than throwing yourself into a situation and pretending you're a, a photojournalist on a photo walk trying to capture, <laughs> right. trying to capture it, something. It's changed everything about the way I make images. It's changed my whole perspective, and sometimes I think people think I'm a little nuts, but it's really changed everything. And that's not to say that a photo walk isn't relevant. You know, I mean, it's, it's great to socialize. It's great to interact and connect with, with colleagues, but at the same time, it used to be that I would say, oh, I'm going to go up for a drive tonight and try and get a great photo. Now it's like, okay, there's that place I found three months ago. You know, what can I do with that this weekend? Or it, because, you know, on this trip, I mean, four months on the road, and I'm probably going to come away with, uh, you know, 15, roughly around 15 new, new pieces, new gallery pieces. To me, I'm thrilled about that. I mean, I don't need a thousand photos. I, if I go somewhere, I just need one. I just need one really great one is all I need. Yeah, yeah, totally. I want to pull up this image uh, that you just sent me in the chat here, this 140 minutes of, of night. I want to have you just sort of talk through this a little bit for the folks that are watching this in the Hangout. Sure. So here we go. You should see it now on your screen. There it is. Yeah, cool. So, okay. So what, talk me through the technical sort of aspect of this. Like, what were you shooting with? What's the lens? You know, you got a tripod, obviously, unless you were <laughs> yes. really... <laughs> <laughs> no, I just have that steady hands. Can you scroll down just a little bit? And this is something I do on my blog. I post one image and then all the tech notes. In fact, there's so many tech notes on this that I, that I made this huge article so I could come back and, and, and remember myself what I did because I, I had some real serious issues with, with noise and artifacting. A, a lot of us probably know this, but the more our sensors heat up, of course, the more noise we get, but also we get into hot pixels and artifacts and things like that. Yep. So this was a fairly cool night. Had it been 80 degrees outside, it never would have happened. I've even thought about, hey, what if we could have had an apparatus that blows cool air on, uh, or, or use dry ice or something to keep, keep these sensors cooled down? Yeah. But, but uh, bottom line is I, I set it up. This is a, a 24-millimeter uh, tilt shift, Canon tilt shift. So I had a little bit of perspective correction. And uh, showing up a little dark here in the print, it's a little bit lighter, probably just the way it's coming through on, on G+. But mm -hmm. uh, bottom line... This is actually, this, technically this is an HDR, and, and what I did, this is a two hour and 20 minute exposure, 
combined very subtly with the final exposure I made while it was still light out. So what I did is, is I had this exposure with the star trails and, and of course I've done some processing. I'm a real tonal guy, so a lot of burning, dodging. And you know, these colors here are real other than that in that they're saturated. I mean, that orange on the horizon, people ask about that. They say, what's that from? Well, I, I didn't paint it in. It was probably distant lights from a city or something like that. Mm -hmm. So on, on star trails, as most of us that do star trails know, you know, boosting that saturation gives more gives more impact, but, but that, it, it, it's a real scene. And then what I did is really carefully just went across here and, and painted in uh, for a, an HDR. So not like a photomatics merge or anything like that. I, I, I teach a lot about dynamic range, and early on I was kind of this, you know, HDR guy that like, oh, I did portraits with HDR and this and that. But to be HDR, it had to be three or more images, and you had to tone map and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, and the yeah. more, I, more, more I worked with HDR, I realized, gosh, you know, HDR isn't a style. HDR is about light, and if you want to do that really intense, grungy look, and there's a reason for that, fine. But that, that's not really HDR so much as HDR is about the light itself. It's about what we do with it. HDR is high dynamic range. Yep. So to bring in, in this case, I used one of my HDR techniques and just kind of did that masking to base with the lighter layer and the darker layer. I, the biggest struggle on this was, was the noise. There was, there was tens of thousands of these little white dots, kind of different than noise. I, I want to call them hot pixels. That may not be the correct terminology for it, but these little white dots. And, and I, I, did, I didn't do the in-camera long exposure noise reduction, but I did do a dark frame after the initial exposure so I could then match it up and, and use the blending techniques to subtract the subtraction frame. Yeah. And even that wasn't enough. So I, it, it's all noted in there, to be honest. I thought I wasn't going to get it because I'm like, I can't get rid of these, these noise things. So I was using layers and this and that, and it, there was just too many of them to clone out. So I was using combination of, of subtraction frames and noise reduction and all this stuff. And it was a real learning experience because now I do do the, the long exposure noise reduction in camera. It's not perfect, but it helps because for me doing the subtraction frame, there was still stuff it wasn't getting. It was kind of putting little holes in the image here and there. And it was, it was a real struggle, and contrasting to that, now that I'm, I'm also working with film, it's different because while you have the reciprocity failure, you yeah. don't get noise. You know, the noise is the same on a long exposure, and that's really cool. On the other hand, you've got to calculate for the fact that you know, the longer that exposure goes, the less sensitive it becomes to light, which, which gets complicated when you're talking yeah. about well, power. That reciprocity too. failure is sort of analogous to noise in some yeah. ways, right? Yeah, other than the fact that if you get it right, if you nail it and you, and you compensate correctly for the reciprocity, Theoretically, you can have a beautiful, clean image, which to me is really cool. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. So what was the, uh, for the 140 minutes of night, what was the, uh, the final destination for that image? Did it go on the wall or was it a client? The final destination was for a wall piece, and I've done some test prints. It's, I haven't officially released it. I'll probably have like a master or a limited edition on that that's somewhere around 40 or 50 inches and then some smaller ones uh, in, in, uh, in smaller, some smaller, maybe a 30 and maybe a 24-inch open edition or something like that. But ultimately, yes, that's the goal is to put it on the wall. And uh, I, I do these images and I work on them, but, but sometimes I take a long time deciding what I'm actually going to do with it. This one was made last spring, uh, spring of 2011. So yeah. there's been some test prints hanging around, and I've had it in my window a little bit and uh, just been deciding what to do. It's, it's probably going to go... Uh, to a, to a, the, the biggest one is probably going to be about a 50 inch on traditional canvas rather than jaclay and and as as a starting point because there still is some noise and stuff when you get in close but it's it's pretty it's pretty solid in fact let me see I'll pop this open I, can I share my screen as well yeah yeah absolutely just click on that screen share button 
And for those that are in the audio feed, I guess they're not seeing this, but I'm assuming we'll just link to this and they can, they can see yep. it on that. Yeah, we'll link to this and we'll also embed this video in the blog post for your episode. Gotcha, very cool. Um, and here is this, let me, okay, so let me just see here. If this is, I just need to click the screen share button then. Yep, yeah, just click the screen share button and then pick the window you want to share. So desktop. And, and tell me if this works. There you okay. go. So if this is my desktop, am, are you seeing Lightroom now? Because I'm in full screen mode. I'm seeing Lightroom. Yep. Okay. So here's the file for this one. And uh, let me just bring this up full, full tilt here to 100%. And, I, you know, it's probably, it's probably compressing this. But the bottom line is I, 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 I really took my time, and I'm glad I did because, you know, it was tripoded, of course. I was real careful to, uh, to keep it still. The funny thing is with these cameras, if you look at the metadata, it only says 2,152 seconds. Well, it was two hours and 20 minutes. At some point, for some reason, the metadata stops counting. Interesting. And, wow. and so, so it won't keep track beyond a certain point. And I don't know if that's probably different on every camera, but, but it is actually the, the full deal. There it is loaded up. And it's probably not showing this clear. I think there may, I may have 100% crop of this on the website. But, but you know, there's, there's actually, so there's quite a bit of foreground detail in here. I, I really have almost no shadow clipping because of that initial exposure that I was able to blend in mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, took a little bit of extra time on the trees and stuff because they're thin, but ultimately it, it worked. For, I'm really proud of this one. Even if I don't sell a lot of this one, to me it was, it, it was a, a turning point in terms of thinking, okay, I don't need to take 10 photos an hour. You know, I just need to slow yeah. down. And what, was, what, what, uh, what hardware were you using? What camera body? What lens? This is a Mark II at ISO 100 on a 24mm TSE 2 at f8. Okay, got it. Yeah. Got it. And Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. And so, the, yeah, this was, this was a fun one. And I've been kind of enamored with Star Trail since. But, but, you know, I mean, there's some people doing beautiful stuff with Star Trails out there. And, and it just, I have a thing for really long. I know we can, we can do these incremented star trails and then we kind of merge them all together but there's something about it it, it comes out of the camera and I've done this long exposure and I, I just really love you know mm -hmm. seeing how far I can push the cameras and I'm, I'm a long exposure nut all over the place I mean I, I, I use a BMW 110 which you're probably familiar with it's a 10x neutral density mm -hmm. and uh, I, I just love it because you can get two minute exposures in broad daylight and that changes the way the world looks I mean here's this $99 filter that you can put on there that completely changes the way you see the world and it really it's so that's fun too now, if I click yeah. the screen share button, I'm assuming this will turn off. Yeah, that'll toggle it back off. Yep. Back to my... So then, yeah, let's, Gavin, let's talk a little bit about the zone system. So that's yes. another thing that I've, I've read that you are, you know, you're really deep into that. So let's start with defining what the zone system is for, for folks that may not be familiar with it, and then let's awesome. talk about what you're doing with it. Super. Uh, the zone system was developed, I can't remember the date, but it was developed by Fred, uh, excuse me, Ansel Adams and Fred Archer, mm -hmm. and... Essentially, in a nutshell, because I, obviously we could, I could spend a lifetime learning about the zone system, and there are certainly people out there that are far more experienced at it than me, but the zone system gave a basis for kind of a start-to-finish process for managing light and exposure, all the way from how we expose in the camera to how we develop a film to how we print it, so that everything in each step was dialed in, and, and you know, neutral gray came out neutral gray in the print. So you calibrate your developing, you calibrate your, your printer, you calibrate how, how you were going to expose and meter. That, that's kind of the nutshell of the whole process. What I did when I started getting into 4x5 is, you know, people said, oh, well, if you're going to do black and white, you use the zone system. For some reason, people think the zone system is just a black and white thing, and it's, it's yeah. really so much more than that. Um, if 
you take the zones. You know what I'm going to do is I'm going to switch back to screen share. Yeah, go for it. For those, because I actually have a little, some some stuff I can show you on here. And for those of us that are for those of us that are those that are in the audio feed, there's an article called the Zone System for Digital on my site that has pretty much everything we're going to be looking at in here. But if I pull up, I think I, I pulled up a keynote that I had on this real quick, and I won't go through the whole thing, but I'll just kind of give you the oh, this uh, is great. Yeah, go the overview it. here. And uh, there, so there's the zone scale right there. The zone scale is 11 squares, essentially, from 0 to X or 10. Uh, v is middle gray. So if you visualize the scale, for, if, if you're not seeing this, visualize uh, pure black to pure white with these squares in between, each square representing one stop. So that's kind of the core of the zone system that, that everything revolved around. Okay, so while, yes, you can get into dark room and all this kind of stuff, a lot of us aren't doing that today. So in simple terms, the zone system, number one, and this is amazingly powerful. Number one, it, it gives us a way to communicate tonal value. I mean, have you ever been out in the field and, or looking at a portrait and you're talking with somebody and you're saying, well, that needs to be darker there, or let's tone mm -hmm. that down. Mm -hmm. The zone scale gives, it's a language of tones. So, hey, zone one, and you can actually, there's a, there's a great Wikipedia article on the, the zone system that kind of describes each zone. But zone zero is black. You know, zone one is almost black, but a little bit of shadow detail. Uh, you know, as you're going up through zone five is 18% gray and all the way up to, you know, zone nine, which is, which is almost white, but a little bit of detail and zone 10, which is clipped white again, there's two five five. Yep. So here, here we have this scale and number one, now you can, you can communicate a tonal value, which, which is useful if you're dealing with other people. But number two, let's say you're out in the field and gosh, when I, I, I got a Pentex digital spot meter, which reads an exposure values. And, and then I started kind of corresponding this with the zone system and looking at, at how this can help me. And at the same time, I was trying to push myself to visualize more. To, to, instead of just taking the picture and making a, a, a picture, I wanted to take my time and, and see a photograph in, I think that's you, not me. That it? was me. Sorry about that. Good. Um, see a photograph in the mind's eyes. As, as we've, we've probably seen Ansel Adam talking about that in a few of the videos that are out there. And, and then you combine that with a zone system. So what happens is, let's say I'm looking at a scene, and you know maybe there's maybe there's a, a, a river here, and there's trees, and maybe there's a sunset sky in the background. And suddenly I'm looking at it. And okay, here's here's a beautiful scene, and and I'll need to think about composition and all this stuff. But in my mind, I can start to see those values. I can say, okay, this sun, this sky up here is pretty bright. It's probably up around you know. Uh, zone, zone 9, is, or, or maybe Zone 8 is how I'm seeing it. But, mm -hmm. but here's my subject. My subject is this stream. Where do I want to place the tonal value of, of the subject? And then how is everything going to relate as I go through that? The, the zone system relates every tone we deal with to our mind's eye, and you can understand it in less than a day. I mean, the, the basic concepts of it. You could spend a lifetime going through this. But if I look at these scenes and say, all right, here's my, here's my shadows. Those are down around Zone 1. Uh, here's my highlights. Those are up, up around zone nine. I can start to mentally picture not only where things are the way I'm seeing them, but where I want them to be. Because let's say, let's say I meter something. So let's say I use a spot meter. Whether I, I love a, a dedicated spot meter, but let's say we're even doing it in camera. So let's say, Frederick, uh, you meter my face, yep. and, and you do exactly what the meter says. And I'm sure you know this, but this is something that's, that's not talked about a lot. All the meters meter for middle gray, right? Yep. So if you meter my face with a spot meter and do exactly what the meter says, I'm going to be 18% gray. Let, let's exclude the color for a moment. It doesn't matter whether in black and, we're in black and white or color. We're talking about a tonal value. Yep. So, but, but then you say, okay, but I don't want Gavin to be 18% gray. I mean, Caucasian skin is usually around zone six if you want it to feel natural. Okay, so which is one stop above 
18% gray. So now the, th the beauty of the zone system is it also stops. So with a spot meter, you can say, all right, I'm going to meter Gavin. It tells me a hundredth of a second. Uh, I'm at F8 at ISO 200. So at that point, all you have to do is move up a stop. If you move up a stop, you're putting me where you want me, not where the camera tells you, not where a meter tells you, but now you move up to 50, you move down to 50th of a second. You've just increased one stop of light. It's going to make my skin one stop brighter. You've just placed me in zone six. So yeah. as we start to work with this, you know, here's a zone scale that I photographed with the Mark II from, from one to nine. And as we start to go through this, first of all, you can communicate it, but you start to visualize and think, okay, it doesn't matter what I see. I mean, it matters, and you know, maybe I want it to be completely natural, okay? But if, but if we look at a scene, like, let me bring something up here. Um, here is, I'm just kind of flipping through these real quick. Can you zoom that up a little bit, Go. I can try. I, I think this is, I kinda, this is kind of designed for a, uh, a projector, so it's a little uh, small. Oh, okay, gotcha. But a lot of these slides, actually, you can see in the article, and you can, and you can see it larger screen. Okay. Um, and it's not letting me do my mouse zoom either. Here, let me try it this way. Bear with me. Don't worry about it. Got it. Here, let me try it. I can at least go like this. It's probably a little pixelated. but um, So, I mean, here's just a rough estimate of, of looking at this portrait, and this is the finished version. And, you know, in the, in the back here in the rocks, I did burning and dodging and, and, and all this stuff to get it where I wanted. So part of the beauty of the zone, zone system, too, is now that you're seeing intonal values, you can place a tone wherever you want it, regardless of where the light is. Something could be bright sunlight. And, if, and you see this in examples if you read Ansel Adams' books. Something can be in bright sunlight, but maybe for your visualization of that scene, you want it to be middle gray. Mm -hmm. So you might, you might say, okay, here's where it falls based on my metering, but I'm going to put it over here. I'm going to put it in zone three. I'm going to put it in zone five. I'm going to put it in zone nine. So what happens is the light becomes a flexible thing, I guess you could say. At that point, you can say, here is this scene. So here, here is Whispering Brook, um, and I can give you a link for, for this too. Yeah. Uh, raw file, unedited. All right, so I had a, I had a visualization. I looked at these, these rocks, and I got this water, a couple of second exposure on this, and got in pretty close. Here is the finished black and white. Now, mm. if, if we look at the water, I'm probably, I'm thinking around zone seven and probably, probably almost up to zone eight on some of these highlights. So if you look at the original exposure, there was my subject. You can see it hardly changes at all in tonal value between yep. the original raw and the final edit. But look at this rock down in the lower corner. We see the highlights on this rock down here. It's darkened mm -hmm. down to about zone three. Yeah, so, you knocked them down. Yep. Exactly. So, and, and not that this is anything new, but what I'm getting at is with the zone system, I'm thinking out in the field of, okay, here's what I have. Here's my zones. This is where I'm going to place them. This is what I'm going to do in the editing. So understanding the zones, metering it, seeing what I have in terms of how many stops of dynamic range. You know, maybe if I put this in zone five, the sky is going to be blown out. Now I've got to solve that somehow. What do I want to do? I could use a fill flash. You know, maybe it's a portrait. Or I could, I could bracket. Maybe I want to do an HDR and recover it that way. But what it does is it gives us the tools we need out in the field to visualize and plan a scene based on those tones, and then using the zones, we can place any element in any tone value we, we want because we have the scale. We know where to put it. So it's simply a matter, even, you can go out right now and do this, do this with a digital SLR. Put it to spot metering mode because those averaging metering modes are basically a computer guessing at where your exposure is going to be. It's trying to make the whole thing 18% gray, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, it, you know, it's kind of averaging out. And it's using algorithms, and, and a lot of times it works good, but I don't want a computer guessing for me. You know, I want to mm -hmm. be able to be in control of this. Yeah. So then, you know, we go through all this. 
I can go out there, I can meter a subject, and I can say, okay, based on the meter reading, this is 18% gray if I did exactly what it told me. Where do I want to put it? What zone do I want this element to fall in for my visualization? I don't care what the camera or the meter thinks. Where do I want to place it? Maybe mm -hmm. I want it in zone 7 or 8. It's so liberating to be out in the field and to walk away and you know what you've just done with the light. It's not like, oh, you know, we've all been there where it's like you get a good photo and you're like, man, I wish I knew exactly what was right with that light. Right, yeah. Could I repeat <laughs> that again? Probably not, yeah. right? And, yeah, yeah. And, and once you get into zones, I mean, that's not to say everything always comes out perfect, but... But it's not a terribly complicated thing. I think people get scared away from zones because, you know, you'll read these really technical articles that kind of describe all this darkroom stuff and all this nerdy stuff. Zone system people tend to be nerdy, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but, so when you, but, Gavin, so speaking of that, so when you're, when you're out and about in the world, you know, are you looking around and do you see it as like the matrix? <laughs> like, do you see like tonal value numbers hovering yeah. over, oh, above man. different things? It's, it's, <laughs> when I first, when I first, okay, are, are you, are, do you know what the Pentex digital spot meter is? Yeah. Okay, so, it's, so here's a meter that reads in exposure values. And, I, and I, I bought one off eBay. They don't make them anymore. I actually paid more for it than it was brand new in 1990. Yeah. That's thing it looks like a little gun, right? Yeah, it looks like a little gun. And so mm -hmm. you've probably seen them. Great meter. And it doesn't do flash or anything like that, but it's phenomenal. And here's, here's the embarrassing story is I got this meter, and, 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 and here's a peeve of mine is that, you know, in the, in the industry of photography and education, you know, we're so busy talking about Lightroom and Photoshop and trying to keep up to date that oftentimes we don't talk about these core essentials that have been around for years. So I knew in my camera that, you know, EV minus one or two, I mean, I'm compensating, right? We're doing exposure value compensation. It had never connected with me and nobody had ever talked to me about the fact that exposure value is a whole system. You know, exposure value goes down from zero all the way to, what is it, 20, I think, mm -hmm. and it represents this range of light. So I, I got this Pentex digital spot meter and you look through it, you know, like this little gun and you're holding it up and it reads an exposure value. And I, I, so I'm excited, I'm unpacking this thing and I, and I hold it up and I'm like, what the heck is 12 me? It's supposed to tell me how to make an exposure. And then very quickly, I, I'm, I'm looking at it, I'm like, oh, wah, wah. You know, you've got to control the dial manually. Then I started using it, and it was amazing because suddenly, kind of like you said, I'm see, I, I, I called a friend, and I'm like, this is really surreal because I'm never going to see anything the same thing way again. I can't look at a landscape now and say, oh, that's beautiful. I look at it and think, okay, that's an exposure value you know, up around, must be around zone, 15, excuse me, around 15, and, and then yeah. I start, add the zone system to this, and I'm out looking, okay, you know, what would I do with this? Boy, that thing's kind of hot. I would tone that down to about zone three, but if that car was my subject, I'd probably want him. And, it, and now that I'm more used to it, the dust is kind of settling, and I'm starting to be able to, to think a little more normally again, but, but one, when you can see in tone values, and you start grasping that, it changes everything about the way you see light. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, it is a little surreal at first. But on the other hand, I love being able to read an exposure values because you can instantly see. I mean, you know, we're, we're still kind of in this era where, oh, let's do HDR, let's bracket. And that can be really useful. Okay, great. But sometimes what I'm often finding is, you know, I see people and they're bracketing and doing all this stuff. But if, if, you, if you tone map three images and there was only two stops of dynamic range in the scene, you know, basically you're crunching everything to midtones and you might end up with chaos if you really don't control those tonal values. Mm -hmm. So... While I do bracket a lot, a lot of times I'll take out that, that, that uh, spot meter, and not that you couldn't do this with any other meter, but you can instantly say, okay, the sky is a, is a 17 and the, the shadow over there is a 14. Well, that's only like you know, three stops, four stops of dynamic range. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it changes the way I think about it too because I'll be like, this, I only have this much range. I don't need to do uh, HDR or I, I do need to do this. One of the most... Uh, have you ever been to White Sands, Frederick? White Sands National uh, Monument? I have not, no. Okay. Um, uh, probably a lot of people listening have. And that was one of the places we went to on our trip. 
it was astounding. I was doing, I was, you know, taking some images and, and, and doing some clips and stuff there for the new exposed workshop I'm working on. But I'm out in these sand dunes and your eyes are kind of interpreting this. It's like sunrise. So the sun is just up over the, the horizon where normally you'd have this broad light to dark. You have a lot of dynamic range between your lights and your shadows. And I pull out the meter and there's like a third of a stop difference between the, the darkest shadows and the, and the lightest highlights. And I was on these dunes and I was astounded because my eye was kind of interpreting and adding these shadows and somebody might, you know, instinctively I might say, oh, maybe I should do an HDR here and bracket or this or that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there's like, you know, a third to two thirds of a stop total range in these dunes because they're all like a huge reflector. This sand is so white, it's all reflecting everything. And it was, it was a real eye opener for me of, you know, don't assume just because I'm looking at something and I perceive it this way, that, that I understand fully what the light is doing. I mean, the meter makes a huge difference in that because I, I would have guessed it was at least two or three stops and it was like a third of a stop difference. And I was like, you know, wow. <laughs> so anyway. So where, where, do you, where do you suggest that, because this is clearly, I mean, I know like the zone system itself is, you know, like you were saying in the beginning, once you get your brain around it, you know, it's sort of life changing, but where do you go to get well, your brain around it? Well, okay, first of all, if you, if, I, I have an article on my site called Why You Need the Zone System for Digital, so we can link that and, and you can, and basically it's a, it's a little more complete version of what I've just been talking about, and the goal of that article is to give you the essential concepts so you can walk away today and start implementing it. Now... I'm not the world's expert on the zone system, but I have been applying it, and I, and I, I refine this article as I go on. That that article explains the concepts of the zone system. It shows the zone scale, which you can download, and it's 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 and and stick to the back of your camera if you want, just to help you visualize. Also, it talks about how the different types of meters work, and and just different things to kind of try and get your head around it. But then you know there, there's a great old book by uh, oh what's it called? I think I have one right here. Hang on, let me see what the name of it is. It's uh, yeah, this one right here. Here's a cool book. Easy read. It's called Zone, v Zone VI Workshop by Fred oh, Kicker. Cool. And, okay. and you can, you know, because it's an old book, it's not new and in style anymore. I mean, you can get, the, you can get uh, one of these on Amazon for like 50 cents or something. Mm -hmm. and, and while it does deal with film and developing and all this different stuff, it, it's a very good core of the Zone system because even though we may not, everybody may not be using film, it's understanding that whole process is still relevant. Yeah. So this is yeah, a it's interesting when we when we when we talk about light, like you say, you know, we there's film, like it started in 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 you know painting, right? The, the right. great portraitist artisans back then that they were creating these great works of art, and then then there's photography and or it's film, and then digital. But the one constant that has remained the same throughout all this stuff has been light, right? So light, exactly. light has not changed very much since the Big Bang, right? So <laughs> it's, it's, you know, is, light has been around for a long, long time, and the properties right. of light, the speed of light, and how light behaves and reacts to different subjects and or surfaces exactly. is the same as it was billions of years ago. So, you know, so what you're talking about is just learning how to to record that and get your brain around what's happening. In yeah, I mean, exactly. Light's been happening since the dawn of creation, and here we are, you know, all this time later, working with light, and in fact, I love to go back. I mean, I really encourage people to go back. One of my favorite uh, eras of photography is the Hudson River School. That was the early American paint, landscape painters and stuff like that. But there's just a lot of beautiful, beautiful stuff out there. In fact, there's uh, and and you'll you'll sit there and you'll look at this and you start looking at what people did, and you know it's it's truly astounding. Let me actually switch real back to screen share. I'll give you the names yeah, of these for anybody that's uh, that's that's 
in the live feed, they can look these up on Wikipedia because these old paintings, you can, you can, you can actually download high-res files. This is uh, Frederick Edwin Church, and what is the title of this? Oh, I can't remember the title of it. I can get it in a little while here. But, I mean, look at the tone control on this. Here's this yeah, painting. look and, at that. It's and gorgeous. It's, and it, it's, just, it's just phenomenal. Or like Rembrandt's Night Watch. I get inspired a lot by these, by these early paintings. Rembrandt's Night Watch was 172 by 143 inches. And, I mean... It, Look at the play on tones. Look at how complicated this scene is and, and yet how certain things fade into the background. And, and I feel like a lot of times with photography, you know, we go out and we take a picture and, you know, if it can't be done in an automated fashion by the latest plug-in, you know, mm -hmm. it's, we, we don't bother. And yeah. not that I'm against, you know, photo tools. I mean, I make photo tools and I use photo tools and plugins and this and that. But getting in there, at some point, you have to get in there and just work with that tone control. And just, and just manage that light in the way that you visualized. And zones, to me, are, are a huge help for that. But however you're doing it, I mean, it, it matters. This stuff makes a difference in the way we make our final images. And, and let me just uh, bring up this one by... Uh, yeah, I, love, I, just, I, I love the idea of, you know, yeah, like, like you said, I think that was, that was a really poignant point about how the tools that we have available to us, whether they're plugins or you know, techniques and Photoshop and all that, that's all really important, of course, and we want to know that stuff, but sure. rewinding back to the fundamentals and understanding what's happening, you know, what is that plug-in doing to those highlights and those highlights and shadows and you know, manipulating that from that DNA level rather than just, hey, I'm going to let the robot do it for me. Exactly. You know, is, is and it, it, it changes, it changes, it, it, it's, it'll change the way you think about it. it it's weird that, uh, you know, it always astounds me when I really started looking into this more a few years ago, started studying with people that have been in the industry for a long time and getting more into the history of it and all this kind of stuff, that suddenly I was uh, struck with this fact that, gosh, us new digital kids are not so unique after all. I mean, we, yeah, you know, it's, yeah. you know, you had guys in the early, in the late 1800s, early 1900s that were layering negatives together to get more dynamic range. I mean, so while, yes, we have new... Uh, you know, newer, different tools, there's so much to be learned from, from looking back at the basic core techniques. And there's so many people out there that, that love photography and they want to they do, do amazing things with it that, quite frankly, they just, they've never seen this stuff. I mean, it's, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and in, some, in some ways, you know, I, I kind of get a little frustrated with the instructors and stuff. I'm like, why are you guys not talking about this? You know, why are we not analyzing this, great, you know, let's, let's understand Photoshop. I, I relate to that. Let's understand Lightroom or Aperture or whatever it is. That, but those are tools. You know, a camera is no more a tool than a chisel is. You're not going to be Michelangelo because you buy a chisel. And, and we, and I, I, I get, I'm getting ranting. This is, I no, no, it's good. It's good. I love the rant. It's, it, you know, you're, you're right because it's, it's, it's almost like when we made the transition away from the dark room into digital we left a lot of that important stuff behind. It's like, you know, we moved, we moved houses, but we forgot to bring a room with us because there's a lot yeah. of stuff. I mean, there's what happened? Important stuff that we, that we're, you know, we're, we're either not cognizant of, or we're just okay with the computer and software and post-processing handling that. Right. And it's good enough kind of attitude. Yeah, it's good enough. So let's talk about that. So, um, you know, you're no stranger to plugins. You have you have plugins set out now. I mean, it's at it's at simeffects.com, right? Yeah, simeffects.com has been going for oh gosh, must be four or five years now. And and I started that 
Um, and it's, it's kind of a blog where I talk about editing and workflow, and I post a lot of freebies for Lightroom and Aperture and, and presets and things like that. I like and freebies. Yeah, freebies are good. So don't, don't hesitate. Yeah, I mean, I definitely sell things over there. And, of course, my goal is that they're going to be so good that you're going to want them, which, which people do. You know, I, I'm pretty passionate. I mean, I've, I'm on my third version, I think, now on my kind of my flagship set of presets. Um, and, and I just I – just, I mean, I use these. I want them to work exactly the way I want, from the efficiency side to how the quality is. One of my, one of my ones I'm really proud of I came out with last, last fall is a dedicated black and white for Lightroom. It's called Silver Shadows 2. And, I mean, you can do it. I think it will surprise you what you can do with black and white. But there's, there's promo videos, and, and you know, I kind of showcase it over there. But if you don't want to buy anything, basically every set I make, there's free samplers of on my blog. And, and you know, it's not hidden. If you get, there's freebie sections over there and, and lots, of, lots of stuff you can get. So I, I, I do those. I, I have an aperture set that, that I have um, of aperture presets, and then mm-hmm. I have uh, some, some Photoshop, do some Photoshop actions and stuff. And, uh, and then I've, I've started more recently doing workshops and things like that as well. So tell me about that, because I know you, you mentioned you know, the, doing a lot of video and, and putting together a workshop. What, what's coming? What's on the horizon for you? Um, my big project for this year is actually called the Exposed Workshop, and it's coming, it's, it's coming in July. It's available for pre-order now on the site. There's a pre-order discount, and uh, what it is is kind of this stuff I'm talking about, but in a little more organized, cohesive manner of looking at exposure from all the way back when we start in the camera, carrying that all the way through to how we burn and dodge and, and all the stuff that we do to get everything dialed in, to make an image come out the way we want it to look. Uh, and it's going to be probably somewhere around three, four hours. And as I was traveling over the winter, we, I left with the family for the winter. We were gone for four months, and that was in, in our little trailer, just roaming around the country, getting into trouble. And, <laughs> and uh, I did a lot of all kinds of footage as, we're, as we were traveling around doing that for the workshop out in the field, you know, talking about the zone system and talking about tonal control and looking at different lighting scenarios. And then I'm going to come back and combine that with scenes kind of like me sitting in here in the studio looking at the screen and, and doing the editing and, and trying to kind of look over all of that. But, uh, yeah, simefxcom slash exposed or F164.com slash exposed. I've been making these silly little teaser trailers as I've been traveling, just these That's little cool. promo videos, having fun with them. But if you're interested, you can check it out over there. There's lots of info there. But I'm really excited about that because I'm really passionate about, you know, getting back a little bit to our roots. I mean, not that I, I'm, I'm a digital kid too, okay? I mean, you can see my printer back there in the background. I'm, I'm out there working with these 4 by 5 negatives and then scanning them in and printing them over here. And so, so I'm not giving up that side at all. But I'm learning so much just by analyzing history. And, and for years, I've been passionate about you know, leveraging burning and dodging and tonal control. And, and the past couple of years, that's even been coming together more and more and more as I've started implementing and studying more with it. And uh, the, the Exposed Workshop is basically all about that. So that's, that's my yeah. ad. Let me, I'll quit going on about that. No, that's cool. <laughs> I, think you're, I think you're, yeah, there you go. I think you're, you might still be screen sharing. Oh, am I screen sharing? I'm, I'm looking at the Google Play. Okay, there we go. Let me, yeah. let me switch that off there. There you go. Perfect. So... That's yes. cool. So that's at simeffects.com and your, just so that I get all this stuff, so st- simeffects.com and then your main site is Sim Studios, and it's S-E-I-M. Yeah, Studios, S-E-I-M right? Studios. And you can get to everything, including my podcast, um, my site for pictorials, which is f164.com. But rather than spout them all out, you know, it's probably easier just to say simestudios.com, everything from my, my podcast to the, me and my brother even do some writing together and stuff like oh, that. Cool. And that, that's all on my, on my, on my main website there. So, um, yeah. Well, that's cool. Well, Gavin, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you for uh, for for taking the time to it's do been this. Really cool. and, I appreciate and it. 
Yeah, no, no, thank you. And I want to extend an official offer to you, if you're up for it, to come on This Week in Photo and chat with us there. I'd love to, yeah. Do the roundtable. Same to you. We'd love to have you on over on the Pro Photo Show. We have the roundtables are fun. They're always fun. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm there anytime you want me. Yeah, it's cool. Awesome. Appreciate it. And, you know, let me go back just real quick and add... Uh, you talked about books. Ansel Adams, I'm sure you're familiar with these books, but the Ansel Adams, the camera, the negative, all that kind of stuff, print, great reads yep. for studying like the zone system. And, uh, and look up a couple books. On, look at, uh, for portrait and, and pictorial stuff, type stuff. Um, there's, a, there's a book on the Hudson River School. Just kind of search that on like Amazon and get like a coffee table book of the Hudson River School. And there's another one on, uh, on get a, 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 like Sargent's. He did beautiful portraits. And I'm, I'm, since I'm rattling off, there's a really phenomenal book uh, called Composition. It's an eyewitness art book. And it's kind of geared, I think, towards middle schoolers. But, it, but it's, it's such a simple, well-presented book on looking at all these different you know, techniques. I mean, composition goes so much more beyond the rule of thirds and looking at how composition has grown throughout the history of art and yeah. you know, the different stuff. And it's, it's an easy, fun read that looks at classical art and talks about the composition that went into it and how it changed over time. And just just a great book. I don't know if it's in print anymore, but it's another one of those ones that you can you can get used, and uh, it's it's good stuff. I love it. I love it. I love your passion about this stuff, man. It's infectious. I love it. It's really, <laughs> it's really cool. Fun stuff. So, yeah. And 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 when I take one more thing, we we keep to, I, I keep mentioning the four by five. When I go out in the field, and you know we've all, we've been here. I'm sure you've been to a national park, yeah. and and. You set up, you know, you got your camera, and, but, but it comes back to, like, you're no longer unique anymore. I mean, here's a busload of people, and they just unloaded, and they each have $10,000 worth of gear. And, yeah. and I know that, it, that, that showing off is not the prime factor in being a good photographer at all. But, it, but when you're standing out there looking over the Grand Canyon, and you're under the cloth on a 4x5 view camera, and people are, like, walking by, and they're whispering, and they're coming up and asking. I mean, you, you feel a little smug because it's like everybody sees that 4x5. You know, everybody sees, and they're just, it's, it's, so for somebody like me who's a little hammy, you know, when yeah. you get out out there with an old film camera, and four months of travel didn't see one other person using a film camera that it, that was identifiable. So that's I, I know people are doing it, but it's just not out there as much. So get some film and play with that too. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, cool, man. Well, thank you. This has been a great hangout, a great interview, and it was great finally meeting and chatting with you. So yeah, we'll, we'll chat more and more. It's been really fun. Years. Absolutely. Look forward to chatting with you and uh, and going further. All right. Cool. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Gavin. Frederick. Really yeah. appreciate it. Bye bye. All right, you can learn more about Gavin over at www.simstudios.com. That's S-E-I-M studios.com. All right, guys, it's time for some listener Q&A. This is the segment where you guys answer some questions that have come in via our various online presences. The first one is from John Ree, and he says, I know the importance of calibrating your monitor, but if you're not doing any printing, for example, your own or others' photos, and will be posting to the web for web viewing only, does it make sense to calibrate your monitor? Alex? What do you think? If you're only putting stuff online, should he care about color calibration? So I have to admit, for a long time, I didn't. You know, it was, you know, if we, other than the computers that were basically publishing something to a known format or a known, you know, color space. So if we're printing to film or sending to a client that's going to go on TV and, you know, and, and you have very specific uh, requirements, uh, that's when I worried about those and only those computers. And the rest of them, I was like, well, everything just has to look like it belongs together. You know, I didn't worry about it as much. And, um, I got. A, I finally broke down. Someone came in and used a spider. Have you seen the little spider elite? Oh yeah. Um, yep. And uh, 
And he was just obsessed with calibrating monitors and just calibrated all of our all all his monitors. Suddenly, everything looks so much better. <laughs> I was just like, "What was I thinking?" So um, yeah. So anyway, uh, uh, so anyway, so I, uh, I I got one and I calibrated the monitors that I have. And what's nice about it is, when you're working, you really at least have some sense that everything's the same because I use a lot of different computers. And they're now that they're all calibrated, they're all calibrated. They all look the same. You know, when I go back and forth, and 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 I get some sense. I don't know whether it's perfectly accurate, but I definitely, if I print anything out or I see it on other computers, I kind of know at least what it should have been. Um, rather than there's just without calibrating your monitor, there's just no. Um, there's no stake in the ground. There's no there's no anchor, you know, to to knowing you know where that's where that is really living in color space. And so so I I um, have come around like slowly and and begrudgingly uh, to uh, really believing in in calibration. All right, look at that. And it's and I'll, I'll the shout out is Chris Tuttle by the way if, if he's listening. He was the one that came into our office and started calibrating monitors and got got me obsessed. Chris Tuttle, anyway. thank you very much for uh, your contribution <laughs> to the world. <laughs> Joseph, what about you? I mean, you you've got you're all over the place. You've got every device. You've got Macs running up and down. Are you calibrated on all devices? And do you care? Mm, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm probably where Alex was a few years ago. I. You know, I, I had done it in the past. I've had calibration tools um, like the Spider, and you know, I don't print that much. First of all, and when I print, I don't print at home. And so, I basically the way I look at it is like this: I'm going to make sure that my levels are good by watching the histogram. When I'm working on photos, I, that's what I look at to make sure that I've got everything in range. And as far as putting photos online, the way I figured is nobody else is going to be looking at my images on a calibrated screen. Everybody else is going to be using it on a standard out of the out of the box Mac or PC screen, which is going to look pretty good, but not exactly the same as mine. And frankly, if I adjust mine to look really good on my screen, that is a perfectly calibrated screen, that's probably farther off than what everybody else is going to see than if I calibrated it on a non-calibrated screen or adjusted mm. the photo on a non-calibrated screen. So that's basically the way I look at it. I want my screen to be as close to what everybody else has as possible. And I, I get Alex's argument that. You should put a stake in the ground, at least a fixed stake, because my stake moves, obviously. Um, but so does everybody else's. So I just kind of figure, you know, eh, it's it's to me, it's good enough. And when I do go to print, I take it somewhere else and I leave it up to them. You know, I'll spot check it. I'll make sure the print is the way I want it to be. But I have had really good luck. Maybe it's just luck, but I've had really good experience with getting prints to come out just the way I want them without having to calibrate on my own end. Yeah, where I fall on that is I'm uh, I'm a little bit anal on that, you know, because I Joseph, as you know, I purchased a new house recently, and I'm I broke out my old Epson printer to uh, make prints for the walls. So, nice. So oh, everything, bring, it, bring it over here and print out some stuff from my wall. Will you? I'd be happy to do that, but I'm calibrated, so I have to be calibrated, and I have I have profiles that I've built for sending things down to Bay Photo and you know stuff like that. So right. I, my the way that I look at it, you guys like. Alex of old and Joseph of new looked at it as, you know, whatever, there's this this margin of error. The way I look at it is things that come out of, you know, Frederick Van Studios or my house, I want them to go out with a certain level of of sort of normalcy. You know, I don't know if that's the word for it, but I want I want to be or tolerance. You know, I want things that go out of here at least I know when they leave, they're right. They're like, when you raise kids, you know, at least you've done your job up to 18. Whatever happens after that, <laughs> you know, they're on their own. My prints are the same <laughs> the same way, even the things I put online. So I don't know. That's just the way I look at it. Thomas, what about you? You got you got you you have a lot of stuff out there. Are you calibrated? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, I guess yes and no, kind of. I mean, I kind of use the cheap and easy way. You know, I mean, Apple has the display calibration utility and the and the preferences. I don't know if you guys play around with that as much, which mm-hmm. probably, you know, is really the unprofessional answer. Um, you know, so I'll use that and, uh, you know, sort of, I guess, semi-calibrate with, with that. But, you know, I don't I don't worry about it much myself. And, you know, I, I, I do I do print my stuff, and I've never been unhappy with what I've had come out of my printer. So I've never felt like I need to go back and change colors or, or recalibrate or do anything different. Yeah. What are you, what are you printing on? Which printer? Uh, I've got the Epson 9900. Nice, nice. I don't, I don't, I'm not familiar with that. Is that the large format one? Yeah, it can shoot up to uh, 55 inches. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. So it can print that. up to 55 inches. It's 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 an it's a beast. It's the size of a of a of a sofa. You know. It's in. You have a guest room dedicated to it, don't you? <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty pretty much. I mean, it's just a the Stylus 9900. It's just a huge giant beast of a machine yeah see i'm i'm working with the 3800 and that's a beast and i like it but it'd be nice to be able to print posters that's uh that's a different show yeah 55 i mean my favorite size of print is 55 by 55 so i mean i love those big square square photographs oh, nice. okay all right how much was hey, that? You can come over and print some stuff from the house. How's that? <laughs> yeah, screw Frederick. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Thomas, I, come uh, over. <laughs> it, it, it was it was a lot of money. It was uh, I, I think it was like sixty five hundred when I bought it. So. Yeah, I'll be see for sixty five hundred dollars. I can send things through the internet to Bay Photo and they'll mail it back to me. So. Yeah, no, it's you know you know what what happened with that was I I had I got a very large print job, uh, which was. Um, uh, you know, it, it was it was a lot of money. It was you know a, uh, a seven figure print job. Oh, so it it's, uh, it absorbed the cost of the printer. Yeah, yeah it was for a, a number of prints uh, that they were using for a, a condominium here in town, and they were um, you know they wanted a number of large prints, and so you know when you figured out the cost of printing it at a service bureau versus kind of doing it yourself, it was still cheaper to go to the service bureau, but you know. This way, I ended up getting to buy the printer as part of the process. I love it. That's great. Wow, seven figures. We'll have to talk about that sometime and how you got that job. <laughs> yeah. All right. Seven figures was wrong. No, seven figures? Yeah, it was. No, seven figures is right, I guess. Yeah, yeah. All right. We won't talk about what that means. Um, the next question is from Chad. Chad says he's looked and looked online to find workshops, but he can't find one website that puts them all together. Can you yeah, tell me if there's... Five, it was five figures, not seven. Five figures. All right, that's seven. better. That's what better. Five, seven figures. That's ridiculous. I yeah, I was going to say, where's your like, where's your Ferrari Mercy? Come on. Geez, I know. I'm so that, that was totally... I can't count. I'm be- <laughs> You're including that, the numbers after the decimal point. That's okay. Exactly. Right, exactly. Because so that, figure, that, that figure even made... You know, 38 cents. Like, look at that. <laughs> that that <laughs> figure made, made, uh, made Alex like sit up and listen you know normally yeah, I, <laughs> I was like I, yeah I whatever that. i can't have that bad information going out there yeah all right chad chad says i've looked and looked online to find workshops but i can't seem to find one website that puts them all together can you tell me if there is a place to go to find the most professionally run workshops um i don't know joseph what do you think I I don't know of one offhand, but I I'm trying to find it right now. I thought that Scott Bourne had put together a website at some point to do exactly that. Hmm. Um, I don't know about that, but I've been digging around a little bit and I'm not finding it yet. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know. I'm gonna I'll, I'll dig around. If we find one, I'll put it in the in the show notes. What about you, um, Thomas? Do you know of anything? You know, I don't know of anything. I mean, I know a lot of people that I respect that do workshops, and I kind of see them mentioned online here and there, and. 
um, you know, we're going to, we're interviewing, uh, Troy Pava on our show later on tonight, who is, a uh, a wonderful night photographer who does a number of them at these junkyards at night and stuff. And, mm. you know, I, I admire the, I think his workshops are great for people that, that want to learn more, but I, I don't know of any site or anything that aggregates them. All right, Alex, it sounds like that might be an opportunity for the pixel core to pull that together. Or do you know of any? No, we should, we should put something together. It sounds yeah. like yeah, we'll have to start thinking about that. Look at that, you know, a little directory. Sounds like a Craigslist for But of course, I think that uh, these, these people giving the seminars, of course, should give us uh, free tickets so that we can go research it and make sure that they're, we're actually recommending good things. Of course. In all your spare time, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> of course. All right, guys, let's close this thing off. It's time for the picks of the week. This is that time where you guys can pick anything as long as it is somehow related to photography. Joseph... I'm going to throw it to you first. What is your pick of the week? I have an idea of what it might be because I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I have an idea what color the sky is because I'm staring straight at it. <laughs> um, so mine's a bit of a cheat, but it is Aperture 3.3.2, and it's a very specific update that was released today to go along with the Mountain Lion release. And the reason that that is a pick is very, very selfish. Um, with Aperture 3.3, unfortunately, there was a tiny little thing that broke. And that was the ability to import presets. And as you probably know, I sell quite a few presets through um, through Aperture Expert. And I think Gavin Syme sells some as well. So I'm sure he he's happy to see yes. this too. Yeah. And you could not install any presets that had textures in them. And most of my presets had textures. And the installation just simply failed and the textures weren't there. And that was broken in 3.3 and still in 3.3.1. But with 3.3.2, it is now fixed. So I am a happy camper and I have many happy customers who have been emailing me all day today saying, yay, it finally works. Nice. So that's my pick of the week. All right. Aperture 3.3.2. I hate these. Like we, we, next is going to be three dot three dot two point oh five pi. Come on, <laughs> come on, jeez. All right, Thomas Hawk, what is your pick of the week? My, my pick of the week, and this this one might not be all that exciting, and everybody already knows about it and everything. But um, you know, two weeks ago, I got one of these new MacBook Pros uh, with the Retina display, and I, I think this is the ultimate photographer's uh, assistant. I mean, this thing is. I just can't say enough good things about it. Um, the Retina display is absolutely beautiful. Photos look stunning. But uh, more than that, I mean, the SSD storage, uh, everything flies. I, I mean, I use Adobe Lightroom, and it's now finally at the point now where the only limitation in Lightroom is uh, is my own ability to move. Yeah. Uh, I mean, everything is just instant response oh it's that uh, fast so the the software and the computer don't lag it's just it's no your lag. ability to move your finger from one point to the other that's the lag time exactly exactly nice. it's just so you know and granted i got the full spec'd out machine i upgraded everything that could be upgraded and it's four grand and you know it's super expensive and all that but, but you had that seven figure job to work from then. yeah no <laughs> that was that was bad i, I, I totally misspoke there i'm just but, kidding no um no, I, I just think this machine is, um, you know, I think it's a dream. I mean, it's the best computer I've ever had. Um, it's it's wonderful. Uh, you know, I use it with the cinema display, uh, with the 27-inch cinema display, which is great. And, I mean, I just can't say enough good things about it for processing photos, which is such a huge part of what we do. And, um, you know, uh, I, I'm just, I've just been blown away at how good it is. 
Now, what's what's your flow of how you work? Like, for example, the way I have things set up is in my office, I have an, an iMac that's connected to the Drobos, and it's got all my music and media and iTunes and all that stuff on it, and I float around with my my MacBook Air 11-inch, right? Yeah. So those are those are the two my two primary machines, and then I have an iPad for reading and stuff like that. So what? How does your how does your configuration flow? You know, I just keep, I just use everything on one main machine. So I've got this uh, I've got this 15 inch uh, MacBook Pro. Uh, I've got a uh, one terabyte drive, external drive that I use to do Time Machine on it, so that that drive is constantly updated. Most of my Drobos, I've got uh, six Drobos now. Uh, they're used for archive storage, so mm-hmm. they're either photos that need to be processed from a day shoot, or they're photos that I've already processed. And so, those I just plug in as I need them. Um, you know, the, uh, some most of my Drobos, of course, don't have Thunderbolt, although the, the Dro- Drobos coming out with a Thunderbolt one. Yep. Um, so, you know, I was using FireWire 800. The new Mac doesn't have a FireWire 800 port, so I've got to use USB two. But even that, I haven't noticed that it's been that bad. I mean, it, it feels about the same speed as FireWire 800 to me. Mm. Um, but so I'm hearing one machine. So you you just one have machine. one one primary machine, and you yep. when you're at when you're in your office, you plug it into the display, and when you're yep. on the road, you unplug it and throw it in your bag. That's right. One just one one machine. I just want to keep it simple. You know, I don't want to have to worry about moving files here and there, and um, I, I like it better that way. And and for me, it's I, I you know I I have the screen when I need it with the cinema display. Uh, when I'm here at home and I'm working and I'm, I'm doing hardcore processing of photos, um, you know, it's super fast, you know, it's fast, it's fast, it's as fast as I possibly could use, uh, Lightroom for. Yeah. yeah. So Photoshop similarly is very, very fast. So, you know, I mean, for me, there's no real reason to have, it's not like if I had a, you know, I could get a more powerful machine that wasn't a laptop and I would have an advantage with that. Now with this machine, it's as fast and as powerful as anything I could need in a desktop plus it's completely portable i take it wherever i go you guys are killing me i'm trying not to buy that machine (laughs) (laughs) you're killing me i just got this air come on Uh, i I have to second it i i have a i just got um i think i talked about a little bit i got a probably a fairly similar uh 15 inch retina and it is it's stunning i mean the speed and the and having i mean i know a lot of people underestimate having two thunderbolt ports and they were like when are you ever going to use that i was like yeah the second day i had it i pretty much had two thunder i mean because if you're starting to hook hard drives up and i i do video so i have a video input device going in i have a hard drive going out i'm capturing right. to that hard drive through the through the thunderbolt it's and um and then you have hdmi just right out of the back right out of the computer and then you have all the storage and speed and everything else it's 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 the you know definitely the best machine I've ever had no alex for your your personal sort of personal mac that you do all your business and personal email and all that stuff on is it that machine and is that do you do you have a similar flow to what thomas does or you you get home and you plug it into a display and, you, and everything's good or do you have a separate machine at home well i live i'm kind of on the road most of the time so yeah. um uh the, the machine i don't really have a personal machine i mean the, the closest thing to my personal machine is my ipad and um what i have with my ipad is i, I have the logitech keyboard case have you seen this no oh man because <laughs> you know just your... just just so you know this is how behind i am Yesterday I bought my new iPad. <laughs> okay, okay. So, so the the um so the, the thing with the with the uh, with the Logitech case, there's a, there's, it's a hard case that you click onto the front, but when you open it up, you can just set your iPad and it magnetically kind of pops in, mm-hmm. and it's a it's a nearly full size keyboard, and um it has completely and in all ways um uh changed the way I um uh. 
you know, the way I use my iPad because now yeah. I can really respond to my emails. You know, I can really like, you know, fully interact with everything. And so, so I use my iPad a lot for that kind of thing, for the personal like interaction and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, the, but my, my question on that is, if you're going to go through that length of getting the iPad and snapping this third-party thing on there, why not just get an 11-inch Air? I have one of those, too. So, so, they, <laughs> so I can tell you why. It's, is I, like touching, I like touching the screen, and I like the option of, of, of um, you know, Flipboard, and I, like the, uh, yeah. I really like the interaction better. I mean, for a personal uh, – you know, if I wasn't doing the kind of work that I'm doing, I would only have an iPad because I want to have that – I want to have the, the – I mean, I'm just used to touching the screen. I find myself touching my own, my own computer screen. Um, you know, right now I'm kind of in a transition because what I had before the 15 inch was a, um, 17 inch. And so I, I'm now kind of halfway between the 15 and 17. Um, and, uh, I can't wait to get, you know, get everything moved over, but you know, you know how it is. You get a new computer and it takes a little time to not use them. And so it, it's really heavy because I'm carrying both of them at the moment because of different pieces. But I also usually for the kind of work that I do, I have to have, um, a backup machine. So that my 17 inch right now is the backup machine. And, uh, um, but it's, it is, uh, for work, I've just never, never had a machine like it. Um, we, it, it streams, we were doing live streams. It streams with less processor, um, utilization than my tower. <laughs> it's, just, it's crazy. And so, wow. and I, you know, of course I, you know, this isn't, I know this is a photography show, but you know, I keep on adding more to it. So I, I plugged in, um, two, uh, external Thunderbolt things that you know you can put the cards in, so that I, then I have quad cards in each one of them, and I was able to get eight cameras, eight 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 SDI signals feeding into my laptop. <laughs> you know, it's just <laughs> sorry, only just Alex. Cause I, just because I could, I just had to know I could do it. Only and, uh, Alex. I don't even know what I'll do with that, but it makes me excited just thinking about it. Wow. All right. Anyway, well, it's great. What What is your pick, Alex? Do you have a pick? Yeah, my pick is uh, there's this little program um, on for your iPad called One Two Three D Catch, and um, and it's so for a, a long, I've been doing a thing called photogrammetry for um, almost a couple decades now. I'm starting to show my age, but really started doing it in the mid '90s. And um, what it, what photogrammetry is is really building 3D models from from photographs. And and this technology, um, you know, when I started doing it, it was manual. Like literally, you took photos from different angles and you use those photos as underlays inside of a 3D program, and you'd build the you literally model from those photos. And that was you know. It was, that was photogrammetry or close to it. The, what we've kind of come to now is, you know, this, this program called RealViz um, Image Modeler came out. And so in, in 2001, 2002, and then you would identify points, you know, painstakingly identify like the same 8 to 12 points on each photograph. And then it would figure out, it would help, it would basically help you find the surfaces. Um, and, but it was still a fa- fairly manual process. Then Autodesk bought uh, RealViz. And they took a lot of that thought process and everything else, and they built it into a, an application that I think is free um, called 123D Catch. And what you can do is you can take photos of an object from different angles, and then it will build a 3D model just from the photographs. <laughs> like it, it's like a real 3D model, or just like, like a some... real like a real 3D model. And um, and so it's it it will uh, it will build that 3D model. And not only that. I haven't tried it yet, but they they have a couple of different things. They have 3D catch. They also have 3D make. So you could theoretically take that model and then um, 3D make or one two 3D make actually takes a 3D model and it gives you the it, it will let you print out a template so that if you cut it out of cardboard, you can stick it together into one of those little cardboard objects. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> all right, that's cool. <laughs> it's it's and it's it's it, it, so they you know Autodesk is obviously just playing with this stuff right now, but it is it's a pretty amazing um, you know collection. But it's just this is really it's it, it one two three D catch that there's a version on the PC that. Um, you know, you can do higher resolution and everything else, but if, even if you just, you can, so you can get a, a PC version of it, it's doing all the work in the cloud. So you don't have to, um, you, you, don't, you don't have to worry about how powerful your computer is, but you take the photo, you can take photos with a regular camera for the PC version and upload it. There's no Mac version. Don't get me started. Um, um, but on a PC, you can upload those and get really high resolution. And if you search my, my page, I think my, my YouTube page is Alex Lindsay. PXC for Pixel Core. Um, you'll see a couple of videos of stone and, and stuff like that that I shot with the the high resolution photos and then put it in there. So it's it's very um, uh, you can do really high resolution stuff. The the, the the iPad one isn't quite as high high resolution, but it, it is it's it's just so much fun and it's free. Do it. It's free. I'm looking at it right now. It's free. And, and <laughs> you, there's there is no reason not to put this on your iPad. If you have an iPad, you're crazy. If you don't, just put this on, and then when you're bored, like literally, this gives you something to do 100% of the time. You just go in there, you take, you take photos of things. Like, I wonder if they can build a 3D model of this. And you hit upload, and then you go back to whatever you're doing, and then and a couple minutes later, it comes down, it's a 3D model. It's crazy. That's crazy. All right, cool. That's a, that's a, good, that's a good tip. All right. Um, real quick, my pick is today, like we said at the beginning of the show, Mac OS X Mountain Lion was released. Um, which is, you know, not the news, but for me, the big deal is airplay mirroring out of that thing. So being able to crack open like I can with my iPad and my iPhone, um, take whatever's on the display on, on my device and put it on my flat screen in the living room along with the audio and present and do slideshows and presentations and do all that stuff. I think this is the killer feature of this OS for me. I mean, cause now I'm thinking about, Hey, I need to add a, a um uh what do you call it you know what, what what's the device the uh, apple tv i need to add an apple tv to my little travel bag so that when i'm doing presentations i can just plug that in and present from whatever i happen to have with me so anyway it's a it's a feature so my pick is a feature of mac os 10 mountain lion the air airplay mirroring feature all right, Joseph, we're at the end of the show. Where can people go to find out more about you, your projects, the stuff you're working on, and those presets you were talking about? Ah, well, for the Aperture stuff, of course, it is ApertureExpert.com and ApertureExpert on the Twitter. And for everything else, just head over to Joseph.info, and you can find everything there. All right, very cool. And Mr. Thomas Hawk, where are you at in the yeah. internets? Yes, I can be found at ThomasHawk.com or just do a search for Thomas Hawk on your Favorite social network, uh, Google+, Flickr, Facebook, wherever, I will be there. Or every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Pacific time on vidcastnetwork.com, we broadcast a live Google Hangout called Phototalk+. Plus. Very cool. That's Vidcast Network. Did you just go to Vidcast Network and then search for Phototalk+, Plus and they'll get it? Yeah, or they could do, if you just go to vidcastnetwork.com, uh, we, we do the show live every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. at night Pacific or other shows that are on there, or on YouTube, we archive all the shows on YouTube as well. So we have an interview uh, with a different uh, photographer every week and talk about a lot of the Google Plus uh, photography-related news. Very cool. All right. We'll have to check that out. And last but not least, the godfather, Mr. Alex Lindsay. <laughs> Where are you at? Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> so um, uh, so I'm, I'm on, I'm on Twitter, uh, Alex Lindsay, uh, and then, um, you can also find me, I, I kind of, you know, 
you know, a lot of quips on Twitter, and then more of my longer posts are, tend to be on G Plus. So, so you can um, you can find me on G Plus. You just search for Alex Lindsay. Most likely, you'll find someone that looks like me, and uh, and so I post some, usually my longer stuff and, and some of my photos and everything else on G Plus. So that's usually a great place to uh, to see what I'm doing. All right, perfect. All right, thanks, guys. And to keep up with everything in the Twip universe, check out thisweekinphoto.com. Also. Please support the show by leaving us a comment on iTunes. And, of course, speaking of iTunes, be sure to check out the TWIP podcast app. It's a handy way to keep up with the shows as soon as they are released. And finally, if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can find me at frederickvan.com. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production, produced by Suzanne Llewellyn, with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. 